This is my moment to say that I've never had a hangover. What? I'm sorry, what? I've n- never once had a hangover. Okay, I'm out. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're discussing Hogfather, a book that comes down to the idea of a tooth universally acknowledged. And our guest is director of the Wheeler Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas, Michael Williams. Hello, Michael. Hello, both of you. I'm very happy out of the gate with that pun. I'm, I'm comfortable. <laughs> Thank all, you. Sorry, Pune. It's, it's always, a play on words. Yeah, it's always a good one at the start of the show. <laughs> very uh, strong. Gives you somewhere to go, namely down. Tell us about your history with Terry Pratchett. I, um, uh, as a big fan of this podcast, I did anticipate that question. And I was thinking about it a lot. And... Actually, I think it comes back to the fact that I got bought on cassette tape the full radio series of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when I was too young to entirely take it in, but I obsessively listened to it again and again. And so it was one of those things that formed my relationship with language, my love of story. It was a kind of uh, foundational moment. And so at that point at which Adams uh, had died and there wasn't any prospect of that particular brain being there to share the world with me anymore, mm. I followed advice and I dipped and I looked around and I wound up, I think, making what I have ever since thought of as a mistake, which was reading the Discworld books from book one mm. and in chronological order and that was fine but it meant that it was a slog for a bit like it meant that i read them i was a voracious reader from a young age there were things in it i liked but overwhelmingly i felt they were complicated they were weird and they weren't rewarding and i reckon it probably wasn't until guards guards Mm -hmm. that it broke open for me Mm -hmm. at which point um it became an obsession yeah. Well, I, you know, and this very is very on board with that. This is, yeah, this is a story that we've we've heard a few times. I think I I feel like I'm the only person who started at the start and read them in order who doesn't feel like that. But maybe I think I was too young. I was too young to appreciate what the big difference was between the earlier and later novels. It's it's funny on the reread those earlier ones. I'm far less damning in my assessment of them. Like mm. at the time. They felt like he was working things out and, uh, and kind of working out his own rules and his own parameters as he went along. But the thing I still think when I go back to those early ones is they seem to me to be singularly lacking in a quality that I think of as very Pratchett, which is joy. Mm. Like mm. his books are so joyous. Once he hits his stride, um, it, it may be joy in the mundane or the ridiculous or in, um, silliness or in uh, random acts of cruelty or bureaucratic <laughs> failure, but he's having such a great time, like right down there. And those first couple feel very buttoned down, mm. I think. Um, and it's funny, especially in light of talking about Hogfather today, Mort is a moment where you feel him start to stretch a bit. And I think um, there's something about 
death that liberates him in the series. Yeah. And I think perhaps like my theory on it is that perhaps when he was starting, he was beholden to a lot of psychological rules about what he should be writing and how he should be writing it. And as he got more into his own world, he was able to shuck some of those off and then just be his own thing. But that could just be pure, well, that is pure conjecture, but that's what I think. Yeah, I think it definitely reads like it. I mean, around the time of Hogfather, a lot of the reviews were about him as a satirist and he even gave interviews where he very bullishly said that he was one of the English language's foremost satirists (laughs) and was quite happy to kind of lean into that idea of himself and that conception. And I actually think the fantasy, whether it's a straitjacket or launching pad, Mm. was not altogether helpful for him. It actually was when he started to go, um, genre tropes are something to delight in rather than something to feel constrained by that he kind of broke out and he across the books like one of the reasons i think guards guards landed for me was at that point i was discovering i love crime fiction and i loved a good puzzle story and a good narrative and you know pratchett is such a consummate observer of narrative tradition that like in that book, I was like, oh no, I recognize the tradition that he's writing to in a way that some of the other ones don't speak to me as much. And this one, he's landing all the beats. Mm. And, and I think that cracked it open for me. Mm. And then in kind of as it went on, actually, I lost patience with the guards books a bit. Like they became less, I think the first three or four of them are amazing. But after that, they felt too formulaic. Actually, what I liked was when he, put himself into a milieu where he had to cut loose a bit and had to do different things. And so um, I developed more enthusiasm for the witches books. I um, I think even that period where every second or third book was about modernity coming to the disc world, yeah. I was always happy with the ways in which that would push him outwards, that would make him play with the entire kind of fabric of the society and that was always a good time Mm. yeah and look and that's that's really around the period that we're reading now you know where we're up to in the podcast we've just read uh feet of clay we had a bit of a detour back to the past for equal rights and now hogfather that's right in that middle period Mm. where there is there are a lot of watch books um but look we should talk about the novel we're here to talk about today which is of course hogfather the 20th Discworld novel which means as of now, we're kind of getting, we're about halfway through. We've, we've read 19 Discworld novels out of 41. I mean, there's still a whole bunch of other books. So we, we are still on a six year mission, more or less. Uh, but this is, the, we're getting serious now. We're getting into the meat of it. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Liz? About getting into the middle of the, yeah. Like, I don't know. Like it just, it stretches on into the future forever for me. So like, I think I'm just, it's, we're going to be like doing our second and last one. I'm like, no, there's still like 20 more. There's still 20 more. So. <laughs> Well, they do keep the, I mean, they're publishing some new stuff now. Like they're just about to publish a collection of the writing that was in some of the diaries and spin-off books that are not, you know, they're well out of print. Is that allowed? Like because of the steamroller thing? Uh, yeah, because it's not, it's not new. It was published. Okay. Um, the steamroller thing was only to destroy any unfinished work. <laughs> um, which is just, I still love that story. But I think with the Discworld books, you could plausibly go back to the start again at the end. Like you could keep a constant rolling cycle <laughs> of rereading um, and yep. recognise that the project is never properly complete. Yeah. You have to go back to it. And you get something new every time because I went into this thinking that I would hate Rincewind again. Mm. So um, I don't. Like he's all right. Yeah. 
Well, so, I mean, yeah, by the time we get to the end, it'll be six years since we read the first one, so we might be ready to go back again. Who the knows? Sydney Harbour Bridge of podcasts. We, we'll get, we could get different guests in. You could come back and do a different book. Let's not imagine this happening because people Twelve, start you're missing. asking. It's a cycle. Uh, <laughs> six small years. Six small years. No. Time's a flat circle. Um, well, look, let's, let us begin with a reading of the blurb. It's the night before Hogswatch, and it's too quiet. There's snow... There are robins, there are trees covered with decorations, but there's a notable lack of the big fat man who delivers the toys. He's gone. Susan the governess has got to find him before morning, otherwise the sun won't rise. And unfortunately, her only helpers are a raven with an eyeball fixation, the death of rats, and an oh god of hangovers. Worse still, someone is coming down the chimney. This time he's carrying a sack instead of a scythe, But there's something regrettably familiar. Ho, ho, ho. It's true what they say. You'd better watch out. (laughs) It's it's full on, isn't it? Just like the whole plot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, it's a a good setup. Although it's interesting because the blurb there, and it it kind of reveals Susan's motivation is not quite what her motivation is. She doesn't really know what she's doing until right near the end of the book, does she? It's also leaning on a crutch, which is the idea that death is villainous. Mm. Like it's having so much fun playing with the Christmas lines and tropes. So that you better watch out is funny. Like it's objectively funny, mm. but it does presuppose an idea that, Oh, oh here comes death. You're in trouble. Whereas that's the absolute opposite of the way Pratchett sets up death in the world. Yeah. And so it's like, it's leaning more heavily on the gags than it is on the kind of character verisimilitude. Yeah, that's true. Which is ironic given the plot. <laughs> yes, mm, <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, but the plot doesn't even start with any of that because when we open the book, we're in the Unseen University and there's a, there's a bathroom. It is having cited Douglas Adams right up the top. I feel like the opening sentence of this book is one of the most Douglas Adams... Uh, kind of beats that I can think of in a Terry Pratchett book, which is everything starts somewhere, although many physicists disagree, yeah. which is just catnip to me. Like I um, read that and I'm in yeah. all the way. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually, there's a few, and I say this about a few of Pratchett's novels, so I felt there were a few other quite Adamsy moments in this one. Um, which seems appropriate somehow. I mean, he was still alive at the time when this was published and written. One of the, I mean, we will come to Hex a bit later in this <laughs> book, obviously. Yeah. But one of the things I always think about with Adams is how sad it is that he died before the internet got big, that he had mm. a brain that was particularly engaged with those kind of ideas. And you guys have talked about it on this podcast before, but the way in which Pratchett anticipates all different kind of future developments and social developments and things. Um, it is the great legacy of a writer, and I think particularly a satirist, that you find yourself thinking, oh, imagine how much fun um, the Ankh-Morpork version of Brexit would have been. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, like, uh, imagine what... what Pratchett's take on all of this would have been. And there's something really kind of quite comforting about that, even though you're never going to get it. Mm. Uh, there's ways in which... Uh, yeah, these ideas uh, feel timeless. Well, you know, we you say we may never get it, but, you know, the, the Watch TV series being made now, we know is quite a loose adaptation. It's more taking the idea of the Watch and the idea of the Discworld and telling its own stories for a more, you know, modern television audience. 
I, I could totally see them doing a Brexit storyline. <laughs> Do you think if it had been a book, it might have been like the the first proper assassins book? Because I feel like that mm. could have been a really good. Because they're kind of like the politicians. I, I love it. it one of the from- reasons I love this book, and I do, Hogfather is definitely up there as one of my favourite Discworld books, I think, is I love the Assassins. Mm. Like, I love, I love Discworld politics, but I love the guilds in particular, because I think there is so much love for weird bureaucracy and the idea of honour and the idea of duty and responsibility and what your jobs are. And so because this book opens with the Guild of Assassins, it's just my sweet spot, uh, uh, from a narrative perspective. I always get sad when it's, even when you know it's not going to be an assassin's book, it starts with one, you're like, it's going to be an assassin's book and it's not like pyramids is the most mm. close you'll get to it being. Yeah. 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 But I mean, yeah, obviously there's a, an assassin who features very heavily in this book. And but, I, and you know, I did say we started with the university, but of course you're right. We start more with this great Adamsy stuff that starts the book off on the first page and we've got that great footnote where he's already establishing that he has a keen understanding of how children's minds work particularly when it comes to stories and literature where he acknowledges that when you take the blood and the guts and the violence out of children's stories that's more for the people who have to tell them to children than for the children themselves who delight in that kind of thing the definitely the um uh, hogfather feels almost more than any other book, kind of ineffably dense with cultural, pop cultural references all the way through. Uh, but the Victorian governess stuff, I think, is the best use of Susan Stowhill of all. Like, oh, it's, yeah. It's, that's the bit where she comes into her own because as a kind of uh, Mary Poppins meets <laughs> Buffy, uh, <laughs> she's just perfect. Yeah. Totally. Um, and, and occasionally, I think, especially because of the breadth and longevity of the series, there are threads that Pratchett sets up that you never quite satisfactorily see paid off, or there are characters who disappear and they're, they're, you're invested early and then they don't come back. And I think this book is the perfect, um, reprise of Susan, uh, and Albert, actually, in a different way, that, mm. to kind of give you the satisfaction of those characters. Yeah. No. Just, um, when the scene where, in, it's becoming a scene, but where she tells the child off for stop trying to be so cute is just. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which we can, we can skip to that. I mean, we'll come back to the, the Arch Chancellor in his bathroom. Um, which is, but although it, it's so indicative of the wizards and as Patrick points out, humanity in general, that they want to open a door precisely because it has a sign on it saying, do not open this under any circumstances. At least they have a bathroom though. Cause have you heard that thing about JK Rowling said about Hogwarts where they don't have bathrooms? They just sort of magic it away. Look, I, I had assumed that was a joke and I am horrified to learn. No, that it's actually one of the worst. It. She's so bad at leaving her own mythical world alone and yeah. she answers questions she shouldn't, but it was, I mean, the question was a really sound one because there's a reference in one of the books to, uh, wizards inheriting muggle plumbing. Mm. And so the interviewer rightly said, well, sorry, what did they do before they inherited it? And she literally said they just did it under their robes and then magicked it away, <laughs> leading everyone to <laughs> mentally picture what a good time they're having in Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Uh, oh, I mean, that that'd be an improvement on the plot of those That's films, true. to be fair. That's true. Let's move on, because we do meet Susan. It's it's time uh, in her new role as governess. And she's she's not... I mean, I, I quite enjoyed how she kind of justifies this position in a way by saying, you know, she doesn't really want to be a noblewoman, even though that's what she is. She's a duchess. 
and she can't therefore have a regular job, but there is this sort of middle ground where you're allowed to be a governess even if you're from nobility, which I was like, well, there's some, there's some interesting, I, I don't think we've seen that in Downton Abbey. Uh, but I think there's some, it feels true. I don't know how grounded in historical fact it might be. I do like, and we tend to get it more in the watch books and around Sybil, but I do like the version of nobility that exists on Discworld. They're yeah. all such unbearable toffs and so kind of happily, gleefully chinless and always have a glass of sherry in one hand and they're, I say, and then yeah. there's a very particular kind of uh, P.G. Wodehouse kind of version <laughs> of the world that Pratchett just loves to have there on the periphery, that, you know, assassins are people doing a job, you know, the, everyone else has their place and then there's the upper class and they're beneath contempt, which I like. <laughs> but the line that Liz alluded to before, which is so wonderful, is what have I told you about trying to sound ingratiatingly cute, Twyla? <laughs> She said, the little girl said, you said I mustn't. You said that exaggerated lisping is a hanging offence and I only do it to get attention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, it, like, as she, she explicitly says later on, she's discovered that if you make really over-the-top violent threats to children, they know that you're being serious but that you're not actually going to hurt them mm-hmm. um, and they love it. I don't know if I get away with that in either of my day jobs, but I'd see, I see the truth in that, that idea. But... Part of what I so admire in this book, which I think combines kind of heavy ideas with a real lightness of touch, is even in this opening scene with Susan, we're seeing the kind of integral underlying theme of the book, which is about the nature of belief. Like, Mm. if you are a governess of children, it's your job to frame the world. And so one of Susan's great frustrations is the previous governess would terrify them with stories of monsters under the bed. And Susan's furious because if you make up a story, you have a responsibility to the story. And that's, like, at the heart of what's so great in this book is is that idea of what your responsibility to stories is and how we kind of define our world around those stories and i love that Hmm. and this first sequence sets that all up fantastically but also it sets up what's to come because susan has a bit of a vision of the future and she feels her mind becoming unstuck in time to borrow a phrase from another book she's not quite sure what it means right now but she can tell something is coming and something's not quite right and we get a bit more of a hint of what that something that's not quite right is going to be when we meet Lord Downey of the Assassin's Guild in his one and only scene in the book. But I do quite like Lord Downey. I don't know why. I mean, I should. He does some. He's got he's, ethics. He's always kind of on the edge of being one of the worst guild leaders, but also maybe one of the best. Like, he never. I'm never quite sure where to put him. How do you feel about Lord Downey? I think him and Whiteface are real good friends. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I bet they are. I bet they share cigars at a crucial moment. I, what I like about him is I feel like the various guild leaders are all kind of sub veterinary in what they, what they bring to the world. They think they're gaming out any situation. They think, mm-hmm. and so we get it in the scene where Downey is anticipating a particular visit from a particular assassin and thinks he knows how to sit in the room to be ready for it and how to be, and is completely wrong-footed. And I think there's something delightful about that, the person who feels like the authority and is kind of uh, expressing doubt. We tend to see them in their chambers on their own having moments of angst, and that's fun. Yeah. Did he? like? So the joke is that the assassin is called Mr. Tea Time, but he sort of says Mr. Teatime. Teatime, I think. Or, I, I don't know. This, who, who can say? Bouquet. But yes. but, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tea Time. Yeah. yeah. So that's his round world equivalent. But um, 
When the servant comes in with tea, does the servant think he's called him Mr. Tea Time and that's the, the awkwardness? <laughs> oh. Potentially. I hadn't picked that up, but I, I think... Because <laughs> he's like all wrong-footed. There, there's just, never just one joke. There's always two or three. But, can you imagine if you sort of go, come in, Mr. Tea Time, and like your person comes in with tea. Here's your tea. I have this relationship where you can't be like, oh, no, sorry, I thought. Yeah. <laughs> You've oh. got to pretend that you meant it. <laughs> yeah. The But before Tiatame even comes in, Downey has the encounter with his client, mm. which is is crucial. And it's flagged in the in the very first part of the book, which is... Uh, when talking about the beginnings of things, and it's earlier still when something in the darkness of the deepest caves and gloomiest forests thought, what are they, these creatures? I will observe them. The auditors are a very pratchett idea. Yeah. And they're, they're basically dementors ahead of their time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but more dispassionate dementors, you know. They're, well, ostensibly. I mean, they go to great lengths to talk about how they don't have individual personalities and they don't have feelings and they don't, you know, they're all about logic and cold reason and the mechanics of the universe. And yet they're quite keen on wiping out things they don't like and they really don't like them, which I, I think is that it's that great kind of balancing act that they're doing. Yeah. Like kind of thanos maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, no, I don't think anyone's ever going to make a T-shirt that says the auditors were right, though. True. Mm. Someone would. Oh, really? You know oh. what? I can I can feel it. One of your listeners is at the screen press right now, <laughs> listening to that line. Oh, I'm but sorry. Th- oh. There is their their literal minded thing. Like Pratchett has a certain love of the character that cuts through pleasantries. So Downey uh, says, "Can I offer you a drink while we wait?" <laughs> he said, "Yes, we believe so." And what would you like to drink? He said, wondering where the auditor kept its mouth. We do not drink. But you did just say I could offer you a drink. Indeed, we judge you fully capable of performing that action. Like yeah. it, it's such a like just completely unpicked, unsettled, someone who is a consummate, like as we say through the books, the assassins are all about a particular kind of interaction. They're all about honor and all about the creed and everything else. Mm. And so to have someone who confounds them is definitely a, a good moment. Yeah. And I love how it's underscored that they're there and they're not there by the fact that all their dialogue has no quotation marks. Mm. Yeah. 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 And, it, you know, Pratchett has a lot of characters that have some variation of that. But I think, for me, the auditors kind of embody that the, mm. the best. Uh, and they, they have a proposition. They want someone uh, – well, they don't want him inhumed. They kind of want him <laughs> to cease to exist. What's the phrase that they use? Um Deleted? Deleted. Possibly? Yeah. They, they, they try a couple of different phrases because they are aware that killed is not really applicable in this circumstance. Um, not that the assassins would use such a crude and awful word. And they pay $3 million, which is an exorbitant amount of money, even no, for the three assassins. Million, they just pay $3 million. It's not dollars. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> um, three million flat gold discs with no stamping or anything on them. Yeah, which just appear as if they have always been there because they can alter reality, which... You know, it gives you that sort of hint that, well, they can do anything they want. Why can't they just wipe out the, oh, because there's rules and they're bending them right now. So it sets up right from the start that they know they're doing something they're not really supposed to do. Um, and it's, I mean, it's also not entirely clear who they answer to. Um, in previous books, uh, maybe Azrael, the death of the universe, but they don't really work for him. It's just that he'd be in charge of their deaths, I guess, when they stop existing i i guess but uh 
It's also never clear if this is all of the auditors or if they're like some sub-faction who are obsessed with the Discworld and making it less weird. Mm, I, they feel like a breakaway group. Like mm. they feel like your classic kind of slightly getting ahead of themselves. And the moments that we get where one of them shows individual identity and has to kind of be puffed out of existence as yeah. a consequence suggests that they're not quite as dispassionate as they would like to believe. Yeah, mm. definitely. But Downey's not above taking the money, even though this seems like a ridiculous request because the person who is not named at this stage, although his name is on the front of the book, so we know who he is, uh, is the Hogfather, is who they want to the have fat removed, man. Mm-hmm. the fat man. Um, and Which has a very nice kind of film noir-y kind of Maltese falcon feel to it, the fat man. Yeah, you can mm. just imagine it, particularly because there's also the sequence where he goes over to the decanters of drink when he's trying to oh, offer them the and drink. and they're all and, backwards. Yeah. And there's that great footnote about Butler's putting the urine backwards. Yeah. yeah. Aaron knew. <laughs> um, but he, he knows just the man for the job, though, and summons Mr. Teatimi or... Uh, Tea to me or Mr. Tea Time. Mr. Tea Time. We'll just call him Mr. Tea Time because that's what everyone else calls him. And also it will annoy him. And I frankly think he needs to be as annoyed as possible because he's such a horrible person. The line about him again at the very start of the book that kind of sets him up and flags that he's coming is something began when the Guild of Assassins enrolled Mr. Tiatame, who saw things differently from other people. And one of the ways he saw things differently from other people was in seeing other people as things. Later, Lord Downey of the Guild said, we took pity on him because he'd lost both parents at an early age. I think that on reflection, we should have wondered a bit more about that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So yeah. much backstory in such Creepy. a short... Yep. Very um, efficient backstory mm. right there. Should have wondered about him. Yeah. He, he is summoned. He turns up in a way that Lord Downey is not expecting through the chimney, which seems appropriate given the subject matter of the book. I do think Teatame is singular in the Discworld series in that he is a villain who Pratchett makes no attempt to find sympathy with. Like, Mm. he is quite happy to present this as a singular fractured mind, like, as someone who sees the world differently and sees the world in a really, in a way that is abhorrent and unlike with almost any other villain in any of the other books, there's no... Um, there's no empathy there. Like yeah. he's designed to be this kind of cold, terrifying uh, kind of figure. And mm. I think that's interesting. Yeah, and no justification for his motivation either. Like when you get someone like Richard Gilt, who I don't think we're ever expected to really feel sorry for, but we understand his motivation. He's a greedy businessman. Yeah. But, you know, you get tea time, he's just like, you just wrong even like small are. gods guy is more understandable because he's got a motivation yeah yeah vorbis and you do and you kind of come around to him not you don't like him by the end of it but you kind of like you get it you get it you get it you're like you're wrong and you're awful but someone's out there is making a t-shirt vorbis was right yeah, yeah. oh definitely <laughs> i might or a cap uh, make vorbis great again uh, oh, no, oh god i uh, but but Teatame has a corkscrew of a mind like the whole reason he's chosen for this task is the same reason he's been kind of sidelined in the Guild of Assassins, which is he doesn't see things like other people. And that that's repeated again and again is mm. he, and there's this great moment when Downey calls him in and gives him the brief where he says, I'm going to need to, some time to think about it. And Downey picks up a pen or something and then Teatame says, okay, I'm ready. I've got it. Yeah. I've, I've worked out the problem. I have a question. When 
Downey's asking him about this job he's done where he's clearly done a horrible, gruesome massacre instead of just killing the one person. And he's like, oh, I didn't think of not doing that. Or, oh, I could have drugged the dog, I guess, rather than nailing it to the ceiling. Oh, and I killed the other people because they're in the house. Do you think he genuinely takes it on his feedback and is kind of like, oh, it didn't occur to me to not do those things? Or is he being manipulative about the fact that he did those things for the pure joy of it? No, I think he takes it on his new data. Like, I think... What I'm interested in with the character is he's not even presented as evil particularly. He's just presented as blank. And so to be doing the bidding of the auditors feels kind of vaguely appropriate. He's mm. This is an interesting exercise. And so Downey's affronted by that because that way of killing lacks elegance and mm. there's a certain way we do We're gentlemen. Mm. And he's just, that's not the way his brain works. But when he's told... It's a bit like when he meets the Lily White boys mm. and he's curious about Peachy, where do you get your name from? It's not a provocation or a power play. It's just it doesn't cross his mind not to ask the question that he wants an answer to. And I think that's there's something almost sweet about his level of creepiness, maybe, mm. for me. Well, yeah, I wonder how he survived through an Assassin's Guild education and not understood any of that because mm. we know from pyramids and from other references to other assassins in the books that they are schooled on you know the art of assassination and that there is this code where you don't kill other people and that you don't do it for the love of it and you don't do it at all if you're not being paid. And we know Teotem is not being paid to kill the entire household of people. He's being paid to kill whoever this noble is. So I, it's, I think, I think it's good not to examine or think about his backstory too much because I don't know that it would hold up to that scrutiny, but it doesn't really matter because he's such a wonderful, horrible villain <laughs> that we yeah. enjoy. I didn't want to think about that too much, but it's, I, but I do think it doesn't quite make sense. I think it just depends on how you rank priorities as well, though, because if your priority number one is to kill the person and get out of the house safely, you could rationally be like, I need to do all these other murders to just achieve the primary mm. goal, mm. so it could still not be for the joy of it. But oh yeah, I think he's certainly still got a logic to it. He's like, well, no, you look like you'll you'll summon the guards or you'll make a noise or you. Yep. So you just, I'll just kill you. Can't it's have easier. a fuss. Yeah, it's be- kind of like um in Buffy, um Adam the the splice together demon villain of season four. He's kind of he kills a lot of people because of the curiosity. Like he wants to see how people work. Mm. But I don't think it's the same, but I think there's a parallel there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Teotime doesn't waste any time, uh, so to speak. Um, he <laughs> time hires is. himself some minions, five criminals who have worked together before and indeed seem to know him and um, possibly have worked for him before as well. Chicken Wire, Peachy, Cat's Eye, Medium Dave, and Dave's enormous brother, Banjo. And only one of them is Keen. I know. And they, they're all... It's Sorry. <laughs> I was completing a thought and I totally missed that. That's okay. Sorry. But it was good. But they're... Um, We're Peachy. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, but they're all, you know, in the bar, they're, they're talking about him. And then, of course, he does that classic thing where he arrives while they're talking about him and they, you know, they sort of sense that he's coming. I kind of love that scene where we're finding out who all these characters are, although it took me a little while to, which I think is the intention, to figure out who's who and, and what their background is. And they're kind of, you know, they're reliable thugs, basically, which is a weird combination for an assassin to hire, but he knows he, he needs some muscle, he needs some people. But it's such a Discworldy concept is everyone has their place in any kind of, whether it's in a heist or like in an elaborate quasi-magical heist or whether it's in 
putting a football team together or whether it's going to war or whatever, there's a, okay, we need this person because they do that or we need this dwarf because they do that or we need... Um, there, it's that great kind of democratic impulse is if you're going to put this kind of thing together, you need people with particular skills. And, um, so those skills can be as blunt instruments and definitely the lily white boys all represent that. But there's something about like, it's, it's the reason this is one of my favorite books is uh, of, of the Discworld series is that it is so, you know, you feel like Pratchett watched Pulp Fiction just before he uh, started writing this one. You feel like he, like you can feel all those influences and the ways in which you go, oh, well, these are fun. How do I flip them sideways or how do I twist them a tiny bit? And so a group of thugs being called on to do a heist, we know what the beats are, we know what you have to do, and the scene memorably ends with Tiatame punching Banjo in the mouth. Yeah. Um in what initially feels like a riff on the hit the biggest person so that you have authority in the group and quickly is revealed to be about extracting a tooth. Yeah. Like, so, so Pratchett gets to have it both ways. He knows the conventions that you're expecting. He plays with them. He puts them front and center, but then also he's got a long game that is, you know, he's got a brain like Tiatame, like it's a corkscrew yeah. and it doesn't go where you think it's going to. Yeah. And it really pays off too, um, towards the end, particularly when Susan's trying to figure out what's going on. It all comes together so beautifully. So yeah, it's a great, it's a great setup for that later on. But of course, not just the thugs that he's hiring in the bar. He's also enlists the assistance of one Mr. Brown, a, um, a very well known locksmith in the underworld and the student wizard, Mr. Sydney, or is it Mr. Sidney? Cause it is spelt with that extra E. It is spelled unfortunately. Sydney? Sydney. Maybe we're supposed to say it like as in the it's the winner is Sydney. Sydney. You've just got the Olympics. It's. I do think that is there. I can feel it. Yeah. It's around the right time as well. Yeah, wouldn't surprise me, Mister yeah. Sydney. But uh, but he gets the gang together. They get a cart, but not just any old cart. It's a special cart, although we don't know what's special about it at this stage. They force the driver Ernie to pick up Mister Brown on the Poor way. Ernie. Mm. Yeah, things are not going to end well for him. But we'll come back to them. Um, but death. Ernie's meanwhile, Ernie. yeah. Just before we get to death, yeah. uh, there's a, a digression in these passages where we see Susan in governess mode. Oh, yes. And uh, the thing I like in it that I just wanted to mention, uh, it's got all the stuff about the previous governess and, and what the kids expect, but we catch the end of Susan reading uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, and <laughs> they liked her stories. The one in the book was pretty awful, but the Susan version was well-received. She translated as she read. And then Jack chopped down the beanstalk, adding murder and ecological vandalism to the theft, enticement and trespass charges already mentioned. But he got away with it and lived happily ever after without so much as a guilty twinge about what he'd done, which proves that you can be excused just about anything if you're a hero because no one asks inconvenient questions. And now she closed the book with a snap. It's time for bed. And you know, that's, that's a quite a good bookend because at the end, and look, you know, we will, we'll still go through in chronological order, but towards the end, Tea Time has that moment where he's trying to be that hero who gets to do the thing and not get questioned. And, of course, it doesn't work for him because mm. he's a gross person. But he summons the children in to be witnesses for that. And I think one of the reasons they don't believe him is they've been governed by Susan. I also think it's one of the reasons the Discworld books get better and better is if you read those first couple, despite the kind of tongue-in-cheek elements you still feel like Rincewind is being set up as a traditional hero, even a flawed one, you know, two flowers there. Like the way those books are constructed 
plays into the very tropes he clearly finds problematic, but he feels like he has to follow neatly. There's the rules. There's the rules. And at some point, and I would place it maybe around more, maybe a bit later, he shakes off the rules. He doesn't need a romantic lead. He doesn't need a love interest. He doesn't need that actually there's more fun in breaking the rules than there is in following them. Mm. Yeah. Which is, you know, also a fairly strong theme in this book in some ways. The next part we come to is death sensing that something is not quite right. There's that great short scene where he's in the bottom of the sea and he's, you know, meeting the tube worms that live on the volcanic vent that are like a very strange extremophile form of life. Uh, when he senses something's not quite right. Uh, and he turns up at the end of the cart driving sequence where Tea Time has decided they don't need Ernie anymore now that Ernie's revealed how to use some magic pixie dust to drive through a wall to where we don't know yet. Uh, and so he just kills him, which Platform becomes nine and three quarters. I think you'll find. <laughs> yes. And this becomes, you know, this is Tea Time's trademark. He's like, Oh, if I don't need you anymore, well, then I'll just kill you. Cause and, that's neater. And his parting words, a classic villain. Wasn't he dull? Yeah. Mm. He's such a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but death shows up there and is like, this isn't quite right. Um, what's going on here? And then shortly after that, we join the death of rats, who it's always such a pleasure to see. I think when I was first reading these books, I did not ever really expect the death of rats to come back. And then every time he does, I'm like, oh, that's right. You're great. And he's not ever overused. I think, you know, there's a few sections in the book where he has a long conversation in his sort of death-like squeaks and chitters. But, you know, he never outstays his welcome. He's just there as a, a nice presence. One of the things I like in this sequence is Death and Ernie's chat is a classic Pratchett dead person and death conversation. But both before Death arrives and after he leaves, the auditors are there and there's that moment where it's clear that they're scared of death or they don't approve of death, that Mm. he is too complicated. And I like that. I like that at some point it goes from... The early death books, the kind of pitch again and again is, well, he's too humanized or he's too invested in or interested in the humans. But actually in this book, it feels more like it's not even so much that. It's just death is complicated. Death doesn't follow easy kind of binary kind of rules. And so there's that great thing about the, um, honestly, he gets worse and worse, said one. He was looking for a said another. Did you notice? He suspects something. He gets so concerned about things. I love that idea that that's death's problem is he's just interfering in a bit of a busybody, which is why the death of rats being so punk seems yeah. important. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm along for the ride because there's sherry and biscuits, but I'm really, I'm not invested. Yeah. He's just so goth as well. Like he rides around on the back of a raven. I mean, come on. Yeah. That's so Strong cool. move. I'm into it. Um, and- I'm into when he decides that the best thing for him to be doing is pretending to be an ornament on the Christmas tree. Yeah. <laughs> that's so yeah, weird. Like, very what's, strong move. What sort of preparation did he have to do for that like can he just like snap that into existence or do you have to go out and buy some stuff did he strip an angel from well, the tree like how <laughs> seem that just undressing a little angel's outfit to put it on so weird it, it, like i it's, yeah it's a fun it's a fun scene and just seeing him on top of the tree would be so freaky but also great how I, long was he there for to wait for like, well i don't think not too long i think susan would have picked it up pretty quickly i know but like he had to be there for her to pick it anyway yeah I would just like to see the behind the scenes on that. I, yeah, no, definitely. That's a, that's a deleted scene that you definitely want to get access to. <laughs> yeah. I also love all the riffs on the Hogfather. And at this point, we keep getting glimpses of him and 
the natural impulse as a reader is to just immediately put Santa in the place. Mm. Yeah. But is I like that instead of reindeers, he has the four boars that's the, home. The and giant called boars, yeah. Gouger, Rooter, Tusker, and Snouter, which yeah. are just divinely good names. The best. That's oh. a tattoo if you want one. Yeah. Gouger, Rooter, Tusker, Snouter. Oh, yeah, yeah. I want actually. I want, I'm going to make the T-shirt with those names in Helvetica. <laughs> yeah, no, we're beautiful. right. <laughs> oh no, yes, right. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, um, I have a question. I'm not sure if it's addressed in the book. I was looking for if I couldn't see it. Why do they keep leaving pork products for the hog father? Well, because because he's traditionally associated. Like, look, it's the, like leaving like a, like it's like leaving reindeer for Santa, or like mm. leaving bits of Santa for Santa. Well, yeah. yeah, but I think maybe in some countries they do leave bits of reindeer for Santa. Like the people do eat reindeers. This is true, but I still think that's more of a cookie domain. It is, you know, eggs in the Easter Bunny. At least you've got a bit of disparity. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you're you're right. What's well, so like eat the flesh dressed. of your brethren? I think I think and he, give me gifts for it. <laughs> it's very Christian. I do think he uh, he hangs a bit of a lampshade on it towards the end of the book, where you've got Death sitting in the children's room, looking at the wallpaper and noticing that it's like little animals in human outfits, and wondering why they have all these jolly pictures of animals that mostly they just eat. And I I think I think that's your answer it's is right that there. People don't think about it too much. But also he's not he's not actually a pig like anymore. Like he's become a man, even if he's a particular particularly porcine man in many ways. But his companions are, it's just, yeah, it seems a bit. Yeah. But, I mean, look, I don't think those boars would hesitate to eat a domesticated pig, to be honest. I mean, apparently that's the best way to get rid of a dead body. Yeah, they'll eat anything, right? Yeah. So I don't think they'll be too fussy. But I I take your point, yeah. Um, I I wouldn't want to be visiting people's houses and be asked to eat other humans. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, this is where we get the first glimpse of death pretending to be the hog father, and yeah, it is, it is like Santa, but just a bit off. Like everything's just a bit wrong. And I love that so much. I think one of the reasons I love this book so much is there is a real fantasy trope that you have holidays in your fantasy worlds that are recognizably pretty much the ones that we have, but you're not allowed to call them the same thing and you have to come up with some other weird reason for them. And there's been some great ones in, in books, but I think Hogs Watch is is definitely the the greatest of them all. The Hog Father is distinct enough from Father Christmas or Santa Claus, but similar enough that we can easily grasp what he is that he's about. And he's got such this rich backstory that's explored in this where he comes from and why he exists and all of the different bits of folklore that have gone into his creation that I just think makes it so rich and, and wonderful. I love it. It also lands in that sweet spot, you know, in a world and we'll, get to this with the wizard stuff but in a world with magic where belief is loaded in the way it is i do love the kind of sentiment that surrounds the hog father in this book albert albert's always a great foil for death anyway partly because he's so kind of crass and profane but the way he talks fondly about remembering hogs watch this is a book that is very fond of christmas like it might mm. not be about christmas but it's very fond of all those traditions. It plays on, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Mm. It plays on, like, at every beat it gets the chance. It revels in. You get the feeling he would watch bad Christmas movies every year with delight. Yeah. And there was real Santa Claus vibes, like the Tim Allen, the Santa Claus vibes of death entering the house for the first time we see it. Mm. Yeah, 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 totally. Slightly off Santa who's filling in. Yeah, definitely. Um, Definitely. (laughs) But it's not long before the death of rats goes looking 
for Susan. It's like, we, this is not okay. We've got to do something about this. Uh, enlists the Raven Quoth's help. Although I don't think they ever mentioned the no, Raven's name. No, they don't say name. his name. So it could potentially be a different Raven, but presumably it's the Never same one. more. Surely. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> he's, he's turning in his little... Well, he's not dead, is he? He's, he's, he's disgusted with us no. for saying the N-word. Um, Definitely po-fest. <laughs> oh no there's two I'm of so those oh. listeners what's what's going on <laughs> i've been cornered uh but yeah they they go looking for her in they beers fi- they find her in beers which is so great the friendliest place. so good that beers is there where everyone knows your name yeah and his species uh and I, although i think my favorite bit is about the barman but i'll save that line until we come the back the bogeyman's like hitting on end. her this is my favorite bit of that. Is he hitting on her or is he just being a jerk? No, he's hitting on her. Oh, he's nagging her. Is that what's happening? Yeah, like he's 100% oh, hitting he, on her. Because he says, oh, he don't you to... want a bogeyman under your bed? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, that is such that a is... sleazy life. That's the worst. <laughs> yeah. But so I was she... like, oh, no, he's just being a jerk. Like he's being speciesist. But then he's like, he's being sleazy. Yeah. They show up at beers. She doesn't want to borrow them. She goes home. <laughs> Very good, Ben. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I didn't even mean that one. Uh, they follow her. They go back to the Gators residence which uh, is where she is the governess. And she still doesn't really want to talk to them, but Death shows up in his Hogfather outfit in her home and she is frankly horrified. There is, as they go into the Gator's place, a line which is a classic Pratchett throwaway line that I love, which is Gawain and Twyla, who'd been named by people who apparently loved them, had been put to bed. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. <laughs> it's just like, oh, uh, he's just quite happy to like take little pot shots. They were named by you, Terry. You named them a second ago for yeah. the purpose of the book. Yeah. <laughs> Not out of love, but out of wicked glee. Yeah. And you know that she, like, the mum got those names out of one of her How to Be a Toff handbooks oh, that she's yeah. always reading. Oh, yeah. Well, like, Gawain, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very psychological. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, look, you know, Death does spill the beans a little bit. He does tell Susan. The, the beans or, like? Oh, we'll come back to the beans. Okay. Uh, but he does tell Susan that, yeah, look, because she initially thinks this is, like, some sick joke that she's he's just come to insert himself into her life again because... The way that this is written insinuates that she hasn't seen him or spent any time with him it's since sad. soul music, which I find quite sad because at the end of it, I kind of felt like they they had reestablished a relationship, but she seems to have rejected it once again and wants to be as normal as possible and is kind of resigned to the fact that she'll never be entirely there, but she's doing pretty well. It's mainly because she doesn't want her hair to do the thing that it does when she's not normal. Yeah, and there's that reference to how it scared off several promising young men, and I'm like, does you she- don't need those idiots. Like, no. what, you need someone who will appreciate that. So it doesn't quite scan. Like, actually, it's. I think it's a bit where the Mary Poppins parallel is useful because mm. the governess thing is about being buttoned down. And so her sense of not enjoying chaos makes sense of her not wanting death necessarily in her life, that she's found a way for order and everything in its rightful place and the kind of button-down Julie Andrews vibe kind of is consistent with that. You don't want, you know. Nonsense. The Silliness. death of rats. Silliness. Flim-flammery. Graham Chapman. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who was good friends with Douglas Adams. Yeah. Well, they all, I mean, there's such a web of all these people who, who knew each other, who, I mean, like Neil Gaiman knew Douglas Adams and knew, um, Terry Pratchett and worked with them both in various capacities. And you like, this is, everybody knows everyone. All those brains were in one room at one time. It's just, yeah. As has been well established, Pratchett's not a man who believes in chapters, but he often has the kind of, uh, sections that drop out of the main narrative. 
And a thing that proves to be quite important in the context of the book as it goes on. The Sandman was out and about dragging his sack from bed to bed. Jack Frost wandered from window pane to window pane making icy patterns. And one tiny hunched shape slid and slithered <laughs> along the gutter, squelching its feet in slush and swearing under its breath. One of the things I really like in this book, and it, it's something that... I always thought Game of Thrones was going to do more as a series and it felt like it dropped was the return of magic to the world Mm. at some point when something goes awry or something shifts. And so uh, things that were once just legend kind of bubble up to the surface again. And it's a, it's a trope that I love when it happens because I love that blurring of what is story and what is real. And I love that moment of credulity and all of a sudden there are dragons again or suddenly there are, but this book is almost explicitly about that. If you give away one kind of uh, belief, what does it make room for and what fills the gaps? Yeah. I like the idea of quota of belief as well. Yeah, yeah, that there's this sort of finite amount of it. You know, it cannot be created or destroyed. <laughs> it just has to go somewhere. I think also those sort of moments, because that's, you know, that it reminded me, and I think this is something we said about some of the really early ones that we read way back at the start of the podcast. It feels both very cinematic, which I think is most of his books feel that way, like the lack of chapters really lends itself to that. But also he's a fantastic comedy writer because he's always having callbacks. Like when you get towards the end of Hogfather, there are so many things that pay off in hilarious ways that he has set up at some points really early on in the book and you've forgotten about them and then he brings them back at just the right moment. It's so much a particular kind of British comedy tradition. It's like Mm. Shaun of the Dead or (laughs) Hot Fuzz where – the first two acts almost exist entirely to plant seeds so that the final act can be a roller coaster of just reward, reward. Now, when death leaves, Susan, and I think this is one of my favorite things that he does, he behaves as if this is all a coincidence, like he's only met her because he's going to every person. And we find out that he's already been to two million homes, um, or nearly two million by this stage. And he's just like, forget about it. Don't worry about it. Just keep living your life. And of course, Susan's like, no. Uh, and as he's flying away with Albert, it's heavily implied he knows exactly what he's doing there. And later on, of course, we find out he absolutely is setting her up to get involved. How is Albert so alcohol tolerant? Because he's a human, right? Yeah, but he's existing outside of the normal rules of space and time, mm. you know? So I feel like... Well, There's a question for Abilius, isn't it, as well? It, it is. is. Yeah. I reckon if you're drinking in death's domain, you might be fine. Okay. Yeah. I think somewhere Bilius would be suffering, but you'd be like, fine. Uh, but then we have our interlude where we first go to the weird tower where Tea Time and his minions have managed to infiltrate. Oh, I'm your worst nightmare. Oh, no, not the one with the cabbages. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. Oh, And he's got so many worst nightmares. They've hunted down all of the, yeah, all the guards in the place, including that last one who's having a terrible time, but not as terrible as he has been able to imagine. Yeah, it, it's so that we come back to this scene a few times through the, uh, the book and it's just drawn. I, I remember the first time I read it where I was just like, what the hell is going on? Where is this place? Like, clearly it's something to do with the tooth fairy. Like, and Terry makes such great use of vague description to, to make it a bit mysterious. He has so much fun in writing the impossible and this book needs that. Mm-hmm. There is also a line in this sequence, which I love, which is a reference to. Uh, the things he dreamed of in the armpit of a bad night. Oh, yeah. The armpit of a bad night is uh, something that I think of a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think we can all identify exactly what that means as well. It's such an evocative phrase. And how it smells. 
Yeah. Oh, oh very much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Clammy. Uh, one thing I will mention just before we move on from that small scene is it does establish that originally Tea Time's plan is to turn up, do the thing that he's there to do, and then leave. But he's become obsessed with the idea that there's this door at the top of the tower that has these magical locks on it that the master locksmith they brought with them can't open. And so he's like, well, I want to open it. So we're going to stay. It's a real theme of the book, isn't it? Let's get through these doors. Yeah. But also it's a failure on his part. Actually, curiosity trumping just being pragmatic and hard-nosed and yeah, can't quite let it go. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it does seem a little bit at odds with his character and yet it seems at the same time quite in character for him to do something weird and yeah. Is it possible that going into that world has awakened like his inner child a bit and that's why he's not as cold on the outside? Well, that would make sense. I mean, we'd see that that definitely is an effect that it has on the others. Because children are more curious and maybe it's been stamped out of him in adulthood. Hmm. Well, meanwhile, Susan decides that she is going to get involved. She summons Binky, stops time, rides off, witnessed by the auditors, by the way, who are like, now nah, she's just mortal. We could kill her if we needed to. Um, although they don't quite go that far, but it's, we get this sense that they're really worried that they're going to get in trouble for what they're doing, mm. which is what really sells to me that these are a little sub faction of auditors who are like, we think this is dumb. It's wrong. We're going to change it. But they're like, but we're not supposed to do this. We're going to get in trouble. They got all riled up on Twitter and now they're off doing a thing. That's true. <laughs> all this is not exactly authorized. We don't want questions asked. One said, we have a duty to rid the universe of sloppy thinking. One said, everyone will be grateful when they find out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. That is not good thinking. Properly weird. Mm. Um, Susan heads off to Death's Domain and finds his kitchen is full of cats. He's been practicing the violin and he's been making all these weird calculations. There's this great bit. And in my version of the script, it's it's written to look handwritten of his calculations, which is, you know, a a riff on that classic trope of could Santa actually exist? By the way, there's going to be a comedy science debate in Melbourne about that very topic. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's going to be fun. And then she goes into the Lifetimer room and the, the library of biographies and finds the secret door behind the bookshelf there are lifetimers for all the gods and anthropomorphic personifications and that the Hogfather's one is shattered on the floor. And she jumps to the fairly reasonable conclusion, aided by some of the things that Quoth the Raven has said, that her granddad's gone a bit funny. He's grown tired of being, you know, in this horrible job where nobody wants to see him and he's he's gone a bit off the rails. And I, it's clearly implied that she suspects he's killed the Hogfather so he can take over his job because he doesn't want to be death anymore. Well, he's got form on it. But can I just say, on on the note, this reads like the emails that I send to myself at like three in the morning when I wake up panicked about my to-do list. So it's like, memo, don't forget the sooty footprints. More practice on the ho-ho-ho. Like, it's just... Cushion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And the cushion comes back later, yeah, which is great. Right. But you, you do. You look at those emails the next morning and you're like, it felt so important. And mm. now I'm not so sure. Or the autocorrects like got into it and you're like, what is this? Yeah, no, no idea. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, back at the university, Ridcully finally tries out the bathroom, which was designed by bloody stupid Johnson, and finds it actually very pleasant, apart from one particular tap, which he gets labelled so that he won't ever use it again, uh, which is labelled Old Faithful. (laughs) He says, no, let's not try that. Is he bedaying that goodbye? Uh, Yes. Uh, And then there are also two throwaway uh, name references in that sequence that I love. One is the gardener, Mr. Moto, which is one of the best names in... Uh, Because he's not 
quasi anything. No. He's the whole, <laughs> He's whole the whole thing. moto. The whole moto. And also the reference to Arch Chancellor Weatherwax, which mm. always makes me happy when those kind of historical things deep cut reference mm, yeah he's i mean he's quite careful about that stuff and i think you know that which is nice because i think pratchett is one to always kind of keep his head in the game in terms of what have i done before because why invent a new character for a minor role or a mention if there's someone who fits it perfectly because yeah. it makes sense that it would be them and the fans will enjoy it and it gives the world that feeling that it's big and it, it's continuous. See, also bloody stupid Johnson. Yeah. Who turns mm-hmm. up all the time. Yeah. But yeah, Rid Kelly has his uh, altercation with a certain tap. Uh, and then this is when he meets the gnome, the hitherto mentioned gnome who's been out on his rounds, um, who he mentions right at the start of the book uh, and notices a strange noise, although no one really pays attention to it at the time. And now here he is, the Veruca gnome. <laughs> Um, which for listeners who are not from the UK or not familiar with UK English, this is basically just another name for a plantar wart on the sole of the foot. Um, which is not, and Veruca, like I had to look up what Veruca meant, but it's, it's a commonly used word, particularly in British comedy. Like it's been mentioned in jokes in Red Dwarf, in Blackadder. I'm pretty Willy sure Wonka. has one. Willy Wonka obviously has the name reference, which we Veruca come salt back to. is a double F fun. Oh, so good. Um, but yeah, he's, and he's kind of surprised. He's like, well, I was pretty sure my dad just made you up. Like, I don't <laughs> think you're supposed to be real. Well, the next thing that happens with death is that Albert convinces death that he needs to make a public appearance that's going to really help because <laughs> we now understand that death's plan is he's trying to increase belief in the Hogfather. He's already revealed. And in fact, this is a throwaway line earlier on, but I think it's quite important. Death realizes whatever it is that is making people not believe in the Hogfather, it's happening very quickly. In fact, it's not just happening quickly. It has gone backwards in time, which is a, a little piece of information that I don't think I noticed on previous readings of the book. And it makes sense because you already have children at the start of the book talking about how, oh, you know, my friend says it's just your parents really. And obviously that's meant to have been going on for some time. And that's because of the influence of what Tea Time is doing, spreading backwards in time and already having had an effect. So it's super effective because of that. So yes, he uh, decides we have to go and do a public appearance. So they go to basically the Ankh-Morpork equivalent of a department store, Crumley's at the mall, but the mall spelt M-A-U-L, which I imagine has as its sign on the outside, just a massive sledgehammer. And they explode in, in destroying the, you know, um, the fake hogfather sleigh with the fake, um, jolly boars. pigs. And, uh, the boars immediately do what, you know, wild boars presumably do. Um, a lot they, of piercing. They piss mm-hmm. on the floor. They, they, they look scary. Um, and, boars uh, are terrifying. Yeah. Um, and he just starts giving the kids presents and they sit on his knee and it, we revisit this so many times during the middle part of the book and it's just glorious every time, uh, as he deals with various different children who treat him with certain amounts of either respect or disdain. Children and knobby knobs. Not to yes. jump ahead, but it, no, that's children right. I think and those who are childlike this. and brain. Yes. Um, <laughs> but always those crucial moments about wanting to give a sword to a little girl because it'll teach her a good lesson. Oh, that's so What if she injures herself? It's educational. Yes, the best, <laughs> one of the best passages of the book. Very quotable. I love that. And while that's going on, ponder Stibbons. Yes. <laughs> this, this is when Rid Cully's like, we've got to figure out what's going on here. We've got this gnome. He shouldn't exist. He goes to the high energy magic building to talk to ponder Stibbons. Who I just look spiritually, I understand Ponder on a very deep level, mm. having been that person in many organizations. I picture Ponder as looking like Chris Addison, 
That's, yeah. that, that's the vibe I get from Pondus Simmons. Yeah, totally. And yeah, we meet Hex in his most advanced form yet. He's got a lot of stuff going on. The it's number, mouse. I know the number of computer puns in this book with Hex is just so glorious. Yeah, he's got the mouse. Ram he's skulls. got Ram on the yeah Ram's skulls on the wheel. It's great. Uh, I love it. I love every one of them. Uh, but before it can figure out anything, they have to fix it because Liz, the bursa's been talking to Hex, <laughs> and he's had an effect. Yeah. Well, it's a mutual effect. The bursa seems somewhat rattled and almost more cogent than you expect to see him because mm. he's being asked questions of his nonsense, which yeah. is fun. Yeah, and this is clearly a riff on Eliza, the program that is meant to emulate an indirect psychoanalyst who just asks questions about what you say rather than trying to delve any deeper, but just constantly questioning you. Red Cully, careless as ever, utters the words... You might as well wonder why we have a god of wine and not a god of hangovers. He stopped. Anyone else hear that noise just then? He said, sort of glingle, 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 (laughs) like little tinkly bells. The conjuring up of things is something Ridcully is so cavalier about. Yeah. Um, And he's got form. Like when there was too much life sloshing about, it was his curses that kept coming to life and flying around around his head. When the computer's gotten all bursted up, they don't know how to deal with it, and so they just frantically try typing in dried frog pills, and then that doesn't quite work, so they type in lots of dry frog pills, yeah. and it does work. Yeah, and I like that Ridcully's typing is uh, predictably pretty terrible, cause, uh, but also nobody knows how to spell in Discworld anyway. So it's dried frog pills, yeah. and the second time it's like got a quarter instead of yeah. a one. Yeah, it's delightful. I love it. But yeah, I don't know why I love that so much. I just don't know how you come up with that in your brain. It's just <laughs> Now, uh, Susan's trying to figure out what's going on. She's in Death's Domain. Quoth the Raven fills her in with a bit of info about the history of the Hogfather because she tries looking through his biography, which is, of course, multiple volumes because he's thousands of years old. And Quoth says, no, you know, like he's a demiurge, like bringing the sun up each day and he's sort of mutated over the years. I don't think they bring the phrase in now, but as they say later in the book, you know, new jobs for old gods. Uh, which I thought was quite nice. They can't really figure out where he is because she can't read the last book. It's got his current life in it. So they decide to go to his where he lives, the Castle of Bones, which is so good. Why doesn't oh. Death live in the Castle of Bones? Well, that'd be too creepy. I guess it'd be like living in the the house of human flesh. Skin. Yeah. <laughs> Can you, I can't imagine a library or a you know, shelves of lifetime is in the castle of bones. Like it would be something else, surely, if your death lived in a castle made of bones. Mm. I feel like he lives in a cabana. <laughs> <laughs> he's just he's just chilling. Not the meat, to be uh, clear. No, I was probably yeah. like the sausage. No, that's where the hog father lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You are what you eat. Uh, but they find it, and it seems like it's been abandoned for ages, which doesn't really make any sense, given you know it's only been a year since last hog's watch, and it's clear that Albert and Death have been there. And not only that, but there's somebody else there who doesn't belong. A figure in a kind of grotty toga who seems to have fallen into the castle from above somewhere and who Susan manages to save from the castle just as it first collapses in on itself and then vanishes as if it had never existed in the first place. And this is Bilius, the O-God of Hangovers. <laughs> that joke doesn't get old. No, it really well. never gets old. It really doesn't. It Every time so he good. speaks, you're just re- reliving certain moments in your life, aren't you? No, and but he's going, oh, me, which is so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, this is where the two plots start to converge, or, or some of the characters start to converge, because Susan brings Bilius to the university to say, look, what is going on? I really love that 
Rid Kelly just recognizes her and knows what's going on. It's a nice bit of shorthand, but also it's a callback to the fact we're acknowledging the history of what's happened before in the mm. story, but in a way that's not inaccessible to a new reader. So I, I quite liked that. There's a couple of little, you know, very small asides about the He's very deaf things. to that. Like, it's the point you were making before about the way in which he has no incidental characters if he can use an existing character to do it is... It's a series that rewards having read all of them. Mm. But when people say, where should I start on the Discworld books? There are probably 20 good answers to that question, yeah, which absolutely. is pretty amazing in a series of whatever it is, 40, 41, mm. 41 yeah. books is I think you could easily 20 might be an exaggeration, but I could think of half a dozen answers I have given confidently to people, each of which is exactly right. Um, that's pretty amazing that yeah. you can dip in at any point or. Many points. You can't say that about many fantasy series. In fact, pretty much none, except for this one. I can't think of any others that are like that. Going Postal is so far down the track, but even that is a really good entry Mm. point, which is remarkable. I think Going Postal or The Truth, there's Mm. something in those ones. And there are ones that are more self-consciously serialized than others and that would kind of defeat you a bit. But because I think it's a bit, and it comes back a bit to why the Guards books work in a kind of crime fiction tradition, is he has such an idea about the rules for anything he does and lays them out so efficiently every time. In some ways, Hogfather is a little more opaque than some of them in that the auditors and their plan and Tiatame and how he works out he can kill the Hogfather isn't signposted too much early on. Mm. I remember on the first read being a bit baffled by mm. all the moving parts, enjoying the kind of mayhem and forward momentum, but actually not until quite late in the book getting the idea. And it kind of matters because the dedication of this book, mm. right back at the start, yeah. uh, is to the gorilla bookshop manager known to friends as Papaint for asking me many years ago the question Susan asked in this book. I'm surprised more people haven't asked it. Mm. And so as a reader, you're immediately looking out for that. And the question is essentially... What, what do they, they do, do with, with all the teeth, the teeth? yeah. Um, and so making the tooth fairy and teeth and that story a crucial engine, actually that's not answered or the sense of it isn't clear for I would say three quarters mm. of the book. Even though it's a major narrative thread, he doesn't feel the need to walk you through it and I think mm. that's interesting. I really enjoy that because rereading it for the podcast, there's a bit quite towards the end where I was like, oh, I didn't remember this bit at all. Like there's yeah. just, and it was one of the fairly minor bits at the end, but I think that's indicative that this book is one that holds on to its mystery as a reveal that is so worthwhile because mm. it really works. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I really enjoyed that. But unlike with a whodunit, the plot stuff is quite clear to you. Here's the baddie. Here are the stakes. Here are the heroes who are trying to overcome it. And so the reveal is almost entirely a philosophical one. Why do we take these digressions to these unlikely O-gods and manifestations of belief? Why is belief so important? And when death makes the point that this matters because the Hogfather's the reason the sun comes up in the morning, that links one kind of belief with another kind of belief and the weight of existence lies in the little things that we believe in, At that point, it all just kind of clicks into place in a way that makes you see that for a book that is at first glance quite baggy, there's almost no digressions in it. Like Mm. It's all laying down planks to that central set of ideas, and that's pretty wild, I think. More of the plots come together than they usually do in these kind of books because often they just have threads that are separate that are complementary but they don't cross over. 
Yeah, whereas in this one, they really all do come together mm. by the end. So, yeah, I really like that too. I think this has a cohesiveness that the other Discworld book it most makes me think of is Masquerade, mm. where there is a very strong kind of narrative push. There's a lot of complicated, seemingly peripheral character work, and then they all pull in the same direction. Yeah. And I think that's, for me, Pratchett at his best. There's a Rid Cully line I noted down just because I loved it, which is, well, I mean, damn it, it's human nature, isn't it? Said Rid Cully hotly. Things go wrong. Things get lost. It's natural to invent little creatures that, all right, all right, I'll be careful. I'm just saying man is naturally a mythopoic creature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that for me is the really sweet spot of this book is that idea that, um, this is a natural state. This is this beautiful human impulse. Um, and it's kind of salvation. And look, during that conversation is when they create a few more of these little <laughs> creatures, which I love. We've got the wisdom tooth goblin, the stealer of pencils, the god of indigestion. Later on, we get the eater of socks, of course. Oh, it's so good. They're just brilliant. Every one of them. The imp of accidentally liking Instagram pictures. You're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> the brilliant thing is, and I listened to this great episode of the podcast, The Illusionist, recently. You know, in medieval times, they had lists of demons that really were like that. Mm. Um, like they had a demon uh, whose name is, I think, Tativilus, whose whole purpose was making monks make mistakes when they were writing out holy manuscripts. <laughs> and so he's now become sort of nicknamed the demon of typos, um, which is how they, they describe him in the podcast. But it's Tertullus, did you say? Tertullus. Tertullus. I'm okay. pretty sure is his name. I just thought, cause like, cause the dot and an I is called a tittle. I thought that was going to be like connected, oh, but it nice. may well be. I didn't know that. That's cool. Mm. Just that you put a dot on a K or something and it's oh, titulous. Yeah. So we're always willing to believe in these things. It's true. It's because you can shift blame onto something else. Yeah, absolutely. We love doing that. They do manage to sober up Bilius, or not sober him up, <laughs> but cure him of his hangover by, yeah, reversing the link between him and the god of wine, which is a glorious scene. Oh. Because we finally get to see the one who like gets away with all the drinking. He's like, oh, we can go to another pub. And then it just stops and you don't see the consequence, but you know it's coming. Because we've all been around that person who doesn't just go nonstop and you're like, where are you putting this alcohol? How are you going? Oh, I've been that person. But <laughs> yeah, me too. Consequences are always disastrous. <laughs> yeah. Which is very well done in the book. It is perfectly captured. <laughs> yeah. I, I also really love that Rid Kelly's just got a little crystal ball on a string in his pocket. It just felt like... Oh, that's like a wizard equivalent of a mobile phone. <laughs> you can do whatever you want on this. You look at people. And it's before smartphones too. Yeah. Very forward thinking there. Um, mm. after it all goes on, Bilius and, and Susan are like, all right, we've got to do something about this because Susan can feel that death is getting a little bit too into being the hog father and it's starting to drag her into the role of being death again. And she doesn't want that. She's like, we've got to figure this out. We've got to get it sorted. She suddenly looks like she's wearing very dark eye makeup. Yeah. Mm. But, but she's not. It's no. <laughs> so creepy. They both have this sort of weird impression of teeth. Billy's from like the weird memories he had before he was incarnated in his new form. And because uh, there's also that explanation that all of the things that are arriving are like these sort of diffused forces of nature that really kind of exist, but they're not personified until people believe in them that way. They decide, well, maybe if teeth's got something to do, we should talk to a tooth fairy. Luckily, Susan knows one, Violet, who goes to beers for a drink, uh, but she's not there. She gets her full name and her address out of Igor, who works behind the bar, much to his chagrin. He's not into it. And they Billy go to uses house. his alcohol power. He, do- 
He does. I like how he's, he's always trying to figure out what his powers are because he's a new god. He's like, oh, I think I have some powers of influence from people who are drunk and maybe I can walk through doors when there's alcohol in the venue. <laughs> and you're like, great, that makes sense. Yeah, he would have no trouble in Australia. Trial and error is the only way to be uh, a god. Yeah, but I love when they go to Violet the Tooth Fairy's house and Susan's basically doing a bit of CSI work figuring out what's going on with her. And, and there's all those little, like, those nice little historical details that Pratchett always pops in of stuff that happened in the real world. It was like, you know, you put your food in a little sack and you put it outside the building when it's winter because it'll be cold there, it'll keep longer. And also all of the animals that might eat it are going to be inside your <laughs> horrible house that you have forced to live in as a poor person. It is a big part of the pleasure of these books is how much he deliberately writes them as period novels. Yeah. You mm. know, like the, the Victorian aesthetic is so important to them and then he has the fun of giving present day inventions and things into it but it's like the key flex actually isn't about the imagined it's about the historical and about kind of trying to set up a world in that yeah which i like and it sets it apart from other fantasy too which is often not really sure where it wants to put itself historically like it's usually ostensibly medieval but then with Slightly better sanitation and healthcare because no one wants to have to deal with those things when they're trying to enjoy themselves in a fantasy universe. Yeah, the Victorian thing lends well to like all the chimneys and the, the basements that come in so often and the rooftop things. Totally. Yeah. And the class stuff, like all of that feels very much of that time. And we get, after they've been at Violet's house, we get Charlie, who is Ernie's colleague. And again, it's one of those classic working class Pratchett characters who's got a certain, he's got the great Ernie's gone too, always gone, never gone. I call that suspicious. I mean, he's got a wife and everything. Won't be the first man to get his head turned by $13 and a pretty ankle. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, no one thinks about Muggins who has to carry the can. Like it's so much that just... Yeah. A minor Python character at all turns. <laughs> and then, but then also I love the way that Susan skewers him and exactly picks him as a very cowardly bully who doesn't actually properly bully anyone, but is just makes everybody's lives a bit worse. And you're like, yes, we've all known that person. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. But they also find a, a vital clue, which is that in her ledger of whose teeth she has mm. to collect is a name that doesn't suggest a child at all. Uh, it's in fact Banjo Lily White. Um, one of the Lily White brothers who is staying at the YMPA. I actually, I have a question which we'll ponder about if you have an answer and listeners, if you have an answer or if you want to make any comments about anything we've said this episode, please do use the hashtag Pratchat26 on social media. But I'm curious about what the P stands for because there's no P in the reformed cultists of the Icor God Belshamroth, which is what it is. So I don't know what the P stands mm. for. Yeah, I don't either. We got the any YMPA. ideas? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I read it, and I don't think I'd ever noticed this before. And obviously, you know, because in previous books when he's done the joke, he's actually had a longer acronym. Mm. But here it's just YMPA, and I don't know what the P stands for. So if somebody knows, please fill us in. I don't know what that is. Uh, I'm sure it's a gag that I'm missing, and that that's good because I I love that the idea that there's still more gags in this book I haven't got yet, and I'm going to get them. What does YMCA stand for? Uh, Young Men's Christian Association. Okay. Yeah. Right. They go to visit the YMPA, though, and they discover Banjo's room, which is very clean. The only clues in there are some children's books and a silver dollar or half dollar. And Susan's like, well, we've got to figure out where Violet is, but now I know her full name. If she's alive, 
I can find her anywhere because I've got a few of Death's powers now. Which is, of course, Violet Bottle, just proving yeah. that uh, he never tires of good names. Like, he wouldn't just settle for anything else. Oh, they're the best. Susan's starting to understand maybe where she's gone. She's got a feel for this description of the place where Violet is, even though it's very weird. And she's starting to suspect what kind of place she's in. Yeah, it's the molar system. <laughs> Oh, no. Um, yep. Mm-hmm. You're yep. welcome. Well, it's where you go when you want to get away from the grind, I suppose. Mm. Oh, that could have been more incisive. <laughs> Mine are never as good, let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> I just I don't have the – no, I don't even know what I was going to say there. I don't have the teeth for it? That's not right, is it? Um, anyway. Should be. <laughs> that's, that's... You don't choose upon life. <laughs> no, that's, that's certainly true. <laughs> but they go there. They, they go to the place where Vile is. And look, you know, we skipped a little bit over what's happening in the shopping centre, but there's various misadventures until, as you mentioned, uh, the watch gets called and uh, they're supposed to arrest death. And there's that great exchange with the shopkeeper where he's trying to explain that he's an imposter and they're like, but isn't it always an imposter? No, he's the wrong imposter. <laughs> it's not like, our imposter. You want us to arrest the hogfather in front of all these kids? And he and the shopkeeper's like... Maybe not. Can you do something more subtle? Which is when Nobby ends up in his lap and eventually gets given a state-of-the-art crossbow. crossbow. That he's Perfect. seen in bows and ammo. Yeah. Which bows and ammo is a great Not the first time that he's read it either. No. It comes up in... Men um, at Arms? In, I don't know if it's in Men at Arms, but it's definitely in <laughs> Feet of Clay. But it's absolutely like he's the sort of person who would read bows and ammo. <laughs> yeah, of course. The other thing that's happening along this is back at the Tooth Fairy's Tower. Mm-hmm. The various mobsters, one of the recurring conversations they have is about the Lily White's mum, which is so mm. nice is because, again, she's one of these peripheral, slightly terrifying characters, but is defined by having a code. She wouldn't approve of Tiatame. She wouldn't approve of this. Mm. And meanwhile, Banjo is as happy as he's ever been. He's in a place for yeah. kids and riding on the swing. And there's something very sweet and a bit kind of sinister about all of that, which I love. Kind but incredibly kind of strong and therefore yeah. abused by the sidekicks. And he does kill someone, at least one person. Yeah. Um, so he's not, you know, not entirely blameless. But, yeah, we do feel for him. It's highly suggestible, I think. He doesn't have that much agency, so he's not as much to blame, arguably, yeah. as other characters. Yeah. Well, Death eventually leaves them all <laughs> and goes off to have a few other adventures, including... A clear parody of the song Good King Wenceslas. Mm-hmm. He starts redistributing food and presents and all kinds of stuff. Saves the little match girl. He does save the little match girl, which and that who he gives to sweet. Constable Visit to look after because it just happens to be them who's in there. And then the angels show up and they're a bit disappointed. <laughs> yeah. You could have shown up earlier. Yeah. It's a good bit of advice to an angel. Yeah. It's not very charitable to get us to do this charity. It's just kind of... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, visits like got some interesting ideas, and he gets some socioeconomic lessons as well. Hex refines the theory that the wizards have about what's going on. Yes, there's a finite amount of belief in the universe, um, and if uh, if these things are appearing because people are believing in them a bit, that might indicate that some big focus of belief has vanished and. This is where they start to go, oh, maybe the Hogfather's the problem. Is the Hogfather here? How will we know? And Ponder's like, maybe we could see if he turns up. And Ritko is like, why would he turn up here? Cut to the adorable scene of the librarian in his blankets on mm. Hogswatch night. Oh, 
I loved it so, so much. So sweet. But also that, that then leads to the absurd conversation about bananas as a type of fish. Yes. Which is such a – there's nothing quite like the wizards for flicking the switch to vaudeville, yeah. like where the, the back and forth is like a music hall thing. Yeah. And definitely talking about uh, bananas as a type of fish. Uh, do they attack swimmers? Not that I've heard, sir. Of course, they may be clever enough to only attack swimmers who are far from land. What do you mean? Like high up in the trees, as it were? <laughs> Possibly, sir. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. kind of so nonsensical. I love it. <laughs> oh, it's the best. Mm. But this is where we finally start to figure out what's going on in this other realm because they've already alluded to the fact that it doesn't feel right, that the sky, there's something wrong with the sky, there's something wrong with the river, there's something wrong with the trees. And Susan immediately recognises this is a place made in the image of a children's drawing of the world, which when you translate it literally is kind of horrifying because the sky is only above you, it's not on the horizon, the water is opaque and blue and the fish kind of are weird, simple fish shapes. The trees are brown and green, which no real trees really are. And it's just, oh, it's creepy as. It needs either Michel Gondry or Pixar to yeah. make it. Like it's it's that kind of extreme of taking an imaginative idea and just letting it play out. But it relies on letting your imagination do it. As soon as you saw it represented visually, mm. it'll be like, oh, yeah, that's fine. I kind of get what they're going for. But the beauty of it is the realisation comes to you as it comes to them and then that makes it extra kind of potent, I think. Yeah. But uh, they get into the tower and they figure out what's been going on. So they've heaped all of the teeth in the tower into a magic circle. And Sydney, the, the wizard, has used an old school magic, sympathetic magic, which is alluded to right at the start of the book, where Rid Cully talks about the fact that there's a pot to put your toenails in in this fancy bathroom, <laughs> which is good because you don't want anyone getting hold of your toenails because if they've got a bit of you, they can use magic on you. It's real easy. It's another Buffy thing. Well before Buffy. Like, this is, this is old school. Like Buffy the movie. Yeah, yeah. like, bu- yeah, all the way back to that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they figured this out. It's, it's, it's actually a fairly simple smell if you have a physical part of someone to influence them. And here in the tower, they have the teeth of every child who's ever believed in the tooth fairy all in one big circle and a spell cast on them to make all these children stop believing in the Hogfather, which is how tea time is, is killing him off. And I just thought that is horrendous, but also very clever. It's <laughs> so clever. Why doesn't it impact adults? Because they were well, children. Well, it does, though, and it says that it does because okay. the children have grown up to be adults. And, of course, the adults are all like, yeah, well, well there's no definitely. hog father. Like, I'm your parents. Like, it's just me. But actually, they should be believing in him. And, again, this is where that influence of it spreading backwards through time, I think, becomes important to make sense of it because he's, he's sort of imagining that the world has become what our world is like or the world in, like, any you know, Christmas movie involving Santa Claus is like where nobody believes in Santa Claus, but he is actually real. Um, whereas on the Discworld, that wasn't the case until this spell was enacted. And once they turn it off, people are going to believe in the Hogfather again and it won't be metaphorical. He actually will turn up. At this point, the story completely corresponds with a whole tradition of those kind of Christmas movies of if we don't restore belief by the time the sun comes up, that, you know, like that yeah. language is very familiar. And I like the efficiency of storytelling that when death is finally amongst the wizards talking to them and kind of everyone catching each other up on what's happening and what the stakes are, as you said before, it doesn't waste any time of anyone being like, but you're death, why are you talking to us? Reed Cully's a character almost entirely made to be 
matter of fact and incurious to be just like, so there's a a moment when death says he has enemies. What did he do? Miss a chimney? (laughs) (laughs) The fact that it gets to a prosaic point so fast is just the nice bit. It's just like, keep it moving. Um, And that bit also has the line that I really love when death tries to explain the auditors and he says, they want you to be less damn. I've forgotten the word (laughs) untruthful. The Hogfather is a symbol of this wistful lying. Mm. And wistful lying is at the heart of it. And I love the idea of wistful lying. Yeah. It's a very beautiful paragraph. Mm. Meanwhile, in the in the Tooth Fairy realm, and we can call it that now, we know what that's what it is. Um, I like my name better, but all right. What, what? It was molar system. Well, the molar system. Okay, all right. <laughs> Far away in the molar system. Things are getting weirder. Uh, because all of the thugs are starting to act a bit more like jerky kids rather than the adult thugs that they are. And weird stuff starts happening. I mean, they all start talking about the things that scared them when they were kids. And there's in previously where there were no shadows in this realm at all, which is one of the things that made it really weird. There is this sort of weird shadowy stuff that's crawling through the walls of the tower. And they're not really sure what's going on there, but it doesn't seem good. And as Susan and Billius try to find Violet the Tooth Fairy and rescue her, the thugs realize that they're there and they get captured and escape a couple of times and they escape because the thugs are being picked off one by one by the things that terrified them as children, Um, which is kind of... It's the horrendous. worst way to go. I know. It's really quite upsetting. There's a great quote that I found. Someone asked Pratchett what this book was about while he was writing it. And he says, oh, yeah, like, you know, someone gets killed by some scissors and someone gets killed by this other thing. I just wrote a bit where someone got killed by a wardrobe. It's a book about the magic of Christmas. <laughs> That's a very Pratchett way to describe it. That great Terry quote that I mentioned actually goes, let's see now. In Hogfather, there are a number of stabbings, someone's killed by a man made of knives, someone's killed by the dark, and someone's just been killed by a wardrobe. It's a book about the magic of childhood. You can tell. No, it is that concept of, it's basically the boggarts from Harry Potter, Mm. but weaponized boggarts that come after you and and take you out one by one. Mm. But again, it's part of Lord Downey's genius in giving the job to Tiatame, is there's a man who has nothing from his childhood still in his head. Like he's quite happy to kind of go through there and there's no threat from his consciousness. Yeah, Mm. Or indeed he was the thing that was threatening to other kids when he was a child, which is also kind of awful. Yeah. Yeah. But then that childish innocence of Banjo comes home to roost Mm. when uh, Susan and Tiatame are kind of having their showdown and Banjo says, no pulling girl's hair, that's bad. And that kind of weighs in to protect his idea of what the rules are. Yeah. Which have come directly from his mother. Oh, yeah, because they see the apparition of her as in giant form. Who kills Medium Dave? <laughs> I was quite <laughs> sad. Medium Dave scared of, like, the, the Lily White's mother? Is that, like, his fear? Yeah. He gives well, a gurgle and collapses, clutching his chest and disappears. What a way to go. Well, Medium Dave is the other Lily White brother. Oh, right. I got... I know, there's a lot of names for those folks. They get thrown around. They do describe her as like the kind of mother that serial killers and documentaries have. Yeah, frightening, mm. uh, frightening stuff. One of the other things that Death does while he's at the university, when he speaks to Hex, is he says to Hex, can you believe things? And Hex is like, yes. He's like, all right, you believe in the Hogfather. And Hex like opens up a cell of its memory and puts that belief in there and believes it 
very strongly to the point where it writes a letter to the Hogfather immediately. It says, yeah. I want these things. I um, wanted to know what it wanted. Well, we know one of the things it wanted is that teddy bear because it refuses yeah. to work when it gets taken away. Yeah. I thought that it was so very cute. sweet. Yeah. Oh, it was nice. Um, so, and, I, and it's implied that that's a big part of fixing this problem, like that that helps to wedge open that gap because as Death explains a little bit later to Susan, his whole plan was until they could fix this problem and the Hogfather could come back he was going to make sure that enough belief of the Hogfather stayed alive over Hog's Watch Night that there would be a place for him to come back to. And I think Hex is a crucial part of that. Yeah. It's partly by necessity that we're speeding up through here, but it's also partly because the book speeds up as well. Yeah. Like the book does all the setup and the last bit barrels forward like the last act of an action film. And in that fight in the Molar system uh, as they're taking each other out, there's line after line that is like Pratchett's writing action dialogue there. So there's having acknowledged that they're in a place where everyone's coming into contact with their inner child. Of course, Susan, the governess, swings in and says, I'm the inner babysitter. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that these, the one liners hit through here in a way that is just so, um, you know, Banjo says, it weren't our mam because they buried our mam. We watched him fill the grave and everything. Yes, said Susan, and added to herself, I bet you did. <laughs> yeah. Like, the kind of tighter it gets and the closer to the ending, the more Pratchett just brings home to roost. Yeah. Those one-liners. Um, I also quite like that there's one bit we skipped over a little bit is that all the magical locks on the that door at the top of the tower are being opened by Mr. Sidney. He's sort of getting through them. And as soon as it becomes apparent that a regular locksmith can't open them because they're magical, Tea Time orders Banjo to kill Mr. Brown by throwing him down the stairs. And I had this strong premonition because he talks about how he knew their ma'am that it was going to turn out that he was their dad. Yeah. Didn't get revealed by the end of the book, so I'm like, okay, that's clearly not the intent, but I think I felt that every time I've read this book. (laughs) It is funny. There are definitely some beats Mm. there that that history being up on the surface is part of what's haunting them all, Mm. and you feel like he's got another thing. He doesn't quite come to anything in the end. I think that's right. That's all right. Um, Could have gotten edited out. Well, could have. The feeling can still be there when a plot line is taken away because you can't edit out the intention you did in the surrounding work. Oh, you could be onto something there. Because it would probably have been one plot too much. Yeah, I think it wasn't necessary. It was just kind of a nice... And it would have been quite tragic, particularly given the ending exactly. that Banjo gets, and we don't want that for him. We want him to have a nice... Which ending. is why an editor would be like, no, maybe we should take that out. And then, so... Yeah. I, I think it's very possible that that is actually what was intended. Yeah, okay. Mm. That could be it. Uh, but there's a great fight sequence up on the top of the tower. Um, it goes back and forth. Uh, Titan grabs Death's sword, which Susan has brought with her, but it doesn't exist here because there's no death in the realm of the Tooth Fairy because it's imagined by children who are too young to really understand what death is. People just go away and they don't come back. Although there's there's also a really nice bit in there about the way that children are taught to think about death and how that has changed over time, which I thought was, you know, an interesting reflection. And that's, you know, it's something that Pratchett is very not preoccupied, but he's, he's very concerned with people's ideas about death. It's one of the reasons he invented death as a character, to sort of humanise it and make it a bit more acceptable to talk about. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's get to the end of this book because I, I'm keen to discuss it as a whole once we're through the plot. Susan manages to get the better of um, Tea Time, not least because Death Sword doesn't exist where there's no death, so he can't use it to attack her. And after some great cinematic sort of back and forth, he falls to his death. Or Presumably, does he? Yes, but like everybody else who dies here in the realm, he's, he vanishes because there is no death here. So you don't get a dead body lying there. You just 
disappear. And he appears, as do so many things, in the Unseen University because it is a realm where reality is a little bit stretched thin. And so that's why all of these creatures are popping up there. It's also um, the the Castle of Bones was another place like that, which is why Bilius turned up there. And he's revived by the wizards. You idiots. <laughs> Let him die. What a jerk. Um, but we'll come back to him because we have to get to the resolution at the top of the tower because that last lock opens itself after Mr. Sidney has left and is presumably offed by his childhood bully in a distressing sequence. The final lock opens itself and the door opens and there's a glowing white room in which is a lovely looking old woman who presumably is the head of all the tooth fairies and she looks like that kind of grandmother who everybody wants but who Susan says and almost never exists. And she's not fooled, is she? No. No. She's like... No, this isn't real. I bet you have a rocking chair and then like one manifests without her even having to look at it. Yeah, it's so good. And this bit I had totally forgotten. This is the bit at the end that surprised me. It turns out this this person who is indeed the head of the Truth Fairies is actually the world's first boogeyman. Yeah. I was like, this is genius. Who at some point is like, I, I don't want to be the horrible person in the dark all the time. And so I started watching over the children in the darkness I started taking their teeth because I wanted to protect them from that old sympathetic magic, but I had to, you know, give them something in return so that it was, you know, proper and legal, like a transaction rather than theft. And you're like, this all makes so much sense. Mm, yeah. I just loved it so much. And it was such a delight to come to that part of the book and go, I'd forgotten this. How great is this part? But he's so old, the the boogeyman, that even though he's been alive here because you can't die, it's just he's just his time has run out and he's been sort of locked away in the top of the tower waiting for the right moment. Um, and now there's people who've come in, it seems like the right moment, and he fades away to nothing. He boogies on out. He does. He boogies on out of there. But this is where we get a lovely sort of ending for this part of the storyline. It's not quite over yet. But there needs to be someone in charge of all the tooth fairies. And so Susan decides Banjo's the man for the job. Mm-hmm. Which kicks of- off the inspiration for, I, I assume, um, The Rock as the tooth fairy in a film 20 years later. <laughs> does make sense. That does. That definitely scans. Mm. Something had to inspire that. Yeah. yeah. But then there's still a little bit more because Bilius and Violet, who have an immediate attraction because Violet doesn't drink. Um, well, it's a great reason to yeah. fall in love. Although there's also that nice thing where like she's a bit dim and he's a bit like, oh, I can't believe I'm attracted to a woman who's dim. And then he goes, oh, on the other hand, she's attracted to a guy who looks like this and refers to his gross <laughs> like toga and the fact that he's just generally unkempt and he's like maybe i'll stop that line of thought and stop being such a jerk and you're like good yep. good bilious good call bilious good. and they have the beautiful thing of like maybe he won't pop out of existence because one person believes in him and that's kind of just yeah nice that is nice yeah it's kind of lovely yeah there are lots of bows wrapped up on the different bits like arguably there are too many endings to this book that it ends mm. early and then wants to wrap up each of the things, but that gives it such a distinctly Christmassy feel. It's like, let's make sure that person got their present and that person got their... And they're all like presents under a tree of the book. Yeah. Because of that, the bows. That is beautiful. That is exactly so. Yeah. Yeah. But I, the most important plot thread that hasn't been tied up yet is, is the Hogfather saved? And the auditors are a bit like, this hasn't gone how we planned um, but we, we, we've still got to get rid of him and he's going to come back. Well, what are we going to do? Like, well, we'll try something, but it's a bit risky. And they go back in time to the 
very first sort of iteration of the Hogfather, who is in fact a massive boar, and they turn themselves well, he's into not that wolves. Dull. <laughs> no, he's a fascinating raconteur. <laughs> he, can, he can talk about tusks for hours. Um, but they <laughs> they chase him. They try to chase him off a cliff. The idea being that he is supposed to die. That's part of the magic. Is that he dies? He's a sacrifice to the sun coming up. But they are going to make sure that he doesn't just die. He ceases to exist before people start believing in him. And that's going to totally wipe out that business. Um, but death takes Susan back there on Binky. He's like, all right, we've got to go do this. I can't do it. It has to be a human being who's there. Susan leaps onto his back in this fantastic cinematic sequence, manages to evade the auditor wolves for long enough that death can sort of banish them. It's not entirely clear if he does like kill them, but he certainly does something that gets rid of them. Hmm. Accurate taxes. Yeah, and uh, there's that bit where he's disguised as a snowman. And I, I, I've forgotten that bit as well. I was yeah, like, same. who's the snowman? I was like, oh, it's death. He's just disguised. But why? There's no reason for him to do that. It didn't make any sense, <laughs> but it was hilarious all the same. Uh, particularly now, you know, post in a post-frozen world. I mean, there's snow reason. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> snow. Uh, but, yeah, it, the, the boar still dies, but in sacrifice to the sun and the, the sun rises and a legend is begun and, and Susan kind of witnesses this evolution as all the various incarnations of the hog father play out before her eyes. He becomes like a, a man with woad on his face, like mostly naked, um, who she binds his wounds and helps him get to his feet. And then, you know, he becomes a, a slightly bigger man in furs and then he has robes on like a priest and then he becomes finally the more modern idea of the hog father with the chariot and the pigs and sits in his chariot and is like, what's with this false beard? It also leads to one of my favourite dynamics in the thing, which is anytime Death and Susan are actually having a conversation because part of the structure of it, not just in this book, but back in soul music, uh, requires them to be separated from one another mm. for the bulk of it. And Susan's default position is one of scepticism or at least a kind of weariness in the face of what's going on, especially in a book that's so concerned with belief. Yeah, This last exchange between her and death is one of my favourites in the book. And she's berating him about, firstly, whether he was confident she was going to survive, and then secondly, she wants to know whether the sun would have risen just the same if they hadn't saved the Hogfather. And death says, no. Oh, come on, you can't expect me to believe that. It's an astronomical fact. The sun would not have risen. She turned on him. It's been a long night, Grandfather. I'm tired and I need a bath. I don't need silliness. The sun would not have risen. Really? Then what would have happened, pray? A mere ball of flaming gas would have illuminated the world. They walked on in silence for a moment. It just... I still remember the first time I read this book and I was so happy with word trickery, as she accuses him, because it has real substance and real weight. The stories we tell ourselves is the point of the thing and so it doesn't matter what's happening what the astronomical fact is what it matters how we frame it and how we make it real and that's yeah i think really moving and it cuts to the core of everything that he's writing Mm. in this absolutely there's one little bit uh, i mean there's several little bits as you say but there's one sort of actiony bit as death takes susan home who should appear but Tea time, who still has death swords. She's home in time for tea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well. And you get that feeling that there's one bit where she's got a tea kettle and she's like sort of getting ready to do something. He's like, don't do anything dumb. And you're like, oh, but wouldn't it be great if tea time got smacked in the face with a tea kettle? Uh, And leaves. 
it's just such a creepy sequence where he's like, oh, now maybe I can kill death. Now that really will make my name. Because earlier in the book, he talks about the fact that, you know, if you kill someone really important, that's what gets you a, a bust in the Guild of Assassins Hall. And it's not a bust of you. It's the person that you killed, but then your name is written on the plaque. But the more important a person you killed, the smaller the plaque is. And the most important ones don't even need a plaque because everybody knows who killed them. And that's what he wants. And so he thinks if he can kill death, well, then he'll be the most famous assassin that has ever lived. And also no one will ever think that he's evil because I killed death. How great is that? And also no assassins could go after him. Well, yeah, because there'll be no more deaths. And he calls the children in because the children have been there and that Gawain has clocked death and just been very nonchalant about it. So it's not scary. That's just bones. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I love Twyla's like talking about, oh, I'm going to get a real horse's skull. I'm going to make it into a hat like General Tacitus. And you're like, oh, this is great. But yeah, he calls them in to witness this. And he's like, look, children, there's a scary skeleton. I'm going to kill it. Isn't that great? And they're like, ah, he's not scary. And Death winks at Susan like he's got a plan. And she eventually gets the poker and throws it at Death. But it goes straight through him and skewers tea time and kills him. And... The exchange they have after that is great where neither of them really knew if it was going to work or not. And Death's like, I was just, well, I didn't have a plan. I was going to wait and see what you were going to do. (laughs) But again, they're both a bit nonplussed, but Twyla knows immediately it only kills monsters. Yeah. Mm. And so the way in which Susan has set up the things they believe in is exactly yeah, sweet spot. And in a fantasy world... Like, the worst monsters in any Pratchett book are always human beings. Mm. They're, they're never the vampires or the werewolves. I mean, with a couple of minor exceptions, it's nearly always it's the humans who are the worst, um, which I think is so central to his way of thinking. Not a vital point, but is it a different poker from earlier because the other one was bent at a right angle? She seems to have quite a stock of them, yeah. Because okay. even after that first one gets bent, she's got another one quite okay. early on. So, yeah, it's like, that's a lot of pokers. Why don't you just get a sword? <laughs> like, get something that's too deathy if she has a sword. Too deathy. Okay, I suppose that's true. Yeah. Suppose that's She's true. a governess. Mm. Got to yeah. have standards. She should have an umbrella. <laughs> no, that's a terrible idea. An umbre- talking umbrella. Yeah. What would it talk? Oh, it'd be like a, a, a the skull of a duck? I don't know. It'd probably correct grammar. Yeah. Oh, it would too. Yeah, yeah I hope so. It, mm. would, it would be like autocorrect. It would always change something else into duck just (laughs) to recognize itself (laughs) yeah Yeah. um all right and this is where we get our little denouements our little little bows on the presents um death buys albert the rocking horse he Mm. always wanted as a small child that's so cute i love that and he doesn't just buy any old rocking horse like not the same model he actually goes back in time Mm. and buys it from the shop and then takes it to albert in the present um is albert the boy stuck to the window yeah 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 Ridcully finds out why you shouldn't use that bathroom because they make that offhand remark earlier about, well, it makes sense that B.S. Johnson could make a bathroom. He makes all those pipe organs. It's all just pipes, isn't it? And yeah, they're hooked up to each other with disastrous Oof. results. All just pipes. Excellent uh, toilet joke as a punchline for the book. <laughs> Good payoff. Yeah. It's all the philosophical stuff about belief and then just yeah. poop. Yeah. The shortest one of these that I quite liked is that there's a mention to something falling to the floor as Death picks up Tea Time's body and Gawain later says, oh, I got this cool marble. It doesn't work normally. It like moves weirdly and I can win all the games with it. And you're like, yeah, that's great. I love that. Yeah, it's very nice. Which kind of reminds me there was a reference early in the book where they mentioned that his eye is made out of the stuff they make crystal balls out of. Mm. Yeah, And you're like, well, what does that mean? He can see things that other people can't see? I don't know. And then there's the the bit with the beggars who previously have 
been given all this lavish food from the best restaurant in town, which has, by contrast, been given all of their old boots and mud, um, go begging at that restaurant and then eat the leftovers of old boots and mud and think it's delicious. So that was just The nice. beggars as a running motif through this book is a lovely thing. Their caroling consists of the fairly sound principle that if they're bad enough, people will pay them to go away, yeah. which is perfect. <laughs> yeah, Millennium so hand and trim. Oh. Oh, it's glorious. And it does sound like a Christmas carol. It does, too. Mm. That's the end. We've gone through the whole book. I mean, we we have glossed over a few bits because I think we all realised that if we talked about every amazing bit of this book, we'd be here for a very long time indeed. Because we wouldn't be just reading the book. We'd be, like, talking about why we like the book. So yeah. it would take, yeah, take five to ten times longer than it would to read it aloud. Yeah. But I'm sure we all have some favourite bits that we haven't mentioned specifically or that we'd like to read out. So does I, anyone want to read one some? Of, one of the footnotes that I'm particularly partial to... Uh, is after death uh, is saying about uh, kids' belief in the Hogfather, uh, most of the letters they don't really believe, they pretend to believe just in case. And the footnote says, this is very similar to the suggestion put forward by the Quermian philosopher Ventra, who said, possibly the gods exist and possibly they do not. So why not believe in them in any case? If it's all true, you'll go to a lovely place when you die, and if it isn't, you've lost nothing, Right. When he died, he woke up in a circle of gods holding nasty-looking sticks, and one of them said, we're going to show you what we think of Mr. Cleverdick in these parts. <laughs> so good. Oh, yeah. Oh. A whole short story yeah. in a footnote. There yeah. Were, and there were a lot of footnotes in this one as well, and they were quite comprehensive. There was more than the usual amount that spilled over two pages for me. Yeah. Yeah. Quality footnotes in this one. Um, uh, which is interesting because, like, you, you know, having gone back and read Equal Rights in the previous episode where there, I think there was one maybe or none, so few, it was nice to come back to a lot of footnotes. My favorite one, well, I had a lot of favorite footnotes, but this one is one I kept thinking about. Juvenile teeth earn no less than a dollar each from her father without arguing. So it's about Susan's relationships to the tooth fairy. And the footnote goes, in fact, when she was eight, she'd found a collection of animal skulls in the attic, relic of some former duke of an inquiring turn of mind. Her father had been a bit preoccupied with affairs of state, and she'd made $27 before being found out. The hippopotamus molar had, with hindsight, been a mistake. Skulls never frightened her, even then. <laughs> yeah, that just, was great. At eight, she's already, like, sussed it all out and scamming them for the best. Uh, one of the jokes I really liked early on, and I think you'll appreciate this, because it is, it is a pun, Beers was where the undead drank, and when Igor the barman was asked for a Bloody Mary, he didn't mix a metaphor. <laughs> I just that was that yeah, made me laugh out nice. loud. I was like, I'd forgotten this gag. That's so good. It's not a footnote, but the bit after the ball of flaming gas illuminating the world uh, that I love about trickery with words is um, Susan says to Death, trickery with words, I would have thought you'd be more literal-minded than that. And Death says, I'm nothing if not literal-minded. Trickery with words is where humans live. Humans need fantasy to be human, to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. You have to start out learning to believe the little lies so we can believe the big ones. Justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. Yeah. And there's the great follow-up to that where she says, those are real. And he says, oh, yeah, we'll reduce the universe down. Is that in there? They're not the same at all. You think so? Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice one molecule of mercy, and yet you act as if there's some ideal order in the world, as if there's some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged. And Susan says, yes, but people have got to believe that or else what's the point? And he says, my point exactly. Yeah. The thing I love so much about that is that 
I think the thing that Pratchett believes in above all else is the story. That mm. that's where you get justice. That's where you get like that's where meaning comes from is the telling of a story. Um, and I feel like that's not just a flex because it makes for a good kind of kind of faux philosophical bend. I think it was his driving engine all the way through. Yeah. You yeah. know, it does come up like carrot being the future king. Like, you know, that thing of, well, we know how this goes. If you've got a birthmark of a certain shape and you appear in this way and you're good and you're uncomplicated and you're the weight of stories is everything to him. Yeah, and it's interesting the way that interacts with the characters who are aware of it too. I mean, I think Witches Abroad is one of the clearest Pratchett examples of that where they keep stumbling across all these fairy tales Mm. and understanding how they work. And it strikes me, I I recently finally got around to reading some Dinah Wynne-Jones and the start in particular of Howl's Moving Castle is like that where the protagonist Sophie's like, well, I'm the oldest of three sisters. That means I'm going to have the shittest life because it's always the third one who succeeds the best. And you're like, oh, yeah, like imagine if you lived in a world where those rules were real. Yeah. That would affect your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I, I love all that stuff. But I also love self-awareness can often be a cloak that you hide under so that you don't have to have sentiment or so that you can cover everything in a kind of ironic detachment. And I don't think that's ever something Pratchett's guilty of. No, that's true. Mm. Mm. He never uses it as an excuse. He's no. not. He's, whenever if he's hanging a lampshade on something, it's in order to make a joke. It's yeah. not to get away with something else. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of truth. There's like vulnerability, I think, about ideas in it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I made a couple of notes about some just sort of little asides. Uh, there's one where they're talking about when they when they accidentally summon the the um, good cheer fairy, uh, who's like you know that that woman who is determined to make you happy. Uh, you're gonna do all the nice things, and they and she's miserable, of course, because the wizards won't play any games with her. But uh, there's a, there's just a side reference that really hurt me deeply because they're talking about all the things that ruin Christmas um, in the lead up to her appearance. And uh, one of the things they say is, uh, and then later on, someone will suggest a board game. And I'm like, no. Yeah, no <laughs> it's Ponda Stibbons that says it. And I'm like, well, this was written in 1996. Uh, it was not the golden age yeah. of board games no, back then. No, it was right. probably Monopoly. It's pre-Catan. Yeah. So <laughs> just not good. Not good. Uh, but I did. That was, I, I was not expecting that. I felt a bit betrayed. <laughs> I was like, By both Pratchett and Ponder. Yes. Yeah. I was like, oh. I really liked Careless talk creates lives. I thought that was yeah, <laughs> such a nice great. inversion. And there's a couple towards the end. I mean, there's so many good callbacks. There's the callback to the volume of a cone when Susan earlier <laughs> on says, I learned all these useless things in schools, like I can calculate the volume of a cone. And when she sees the conical pile of teeth, she calculates how many there are really quickly. Um, you have to know the volume of a tooth first, don't you? Like, well, I think she does. She converts it to the number of teeth or something. It's, it's, it seemed reasonable at the time. But it's good. But also there's Death's like real badass line when uh, Tear Time confronts him. He says, uh, no last minute stuff. And he's like, I am last minute yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that was cool. And there's one bit where right at the end uh, someone says, and good night children everywhere. everywhere. And it just that reminded me and get ready to take a drink long time listeners of a Doctor Who episode <laughs> from the 60s uh, called The Feast of Stephen, which was broadcast on or it was either on Christmas Eve or on Christmas Day, and 
William Hartnell, who played the Doctor at the time, knew it would be broadcast at that time, and he goes completely off script and looks straight into the camera and breaks the fourth wall and says, and a Merry Christmas to all of you at home, <laughs> which there is no way to interpret in character, in universe. Hartnell. Yeah, he just goes, it's famous, but it just reminded me That's of that moment. That's fine, as the Doctor is allowed. And I thought particularly appropriate in a book where... Death's granddaughter Susan is involved. Seeing is true. That's clearly where Pratchett got the idea for naming Death's granddaughter. Yeah, I just had one final one that is basically it just really made me feel like it's me at parties in a book. So Albert's telling him all about how he had a rough childhood, and they're talking about all the socioeconomic stuff that determines gifts, which I thought was really interesting. And he goes, "We didn't even have a pot to piss in," and he continues talking, and Death goes. Please enlighten me. What is so important about having a pot to piss in? And that is a thing I do while people are having a nice conversation. They'll say some sort of phrase and I'll derail it by trying to get to the bottom of it. And it just kills conversations. Because <laughs> you're like, what is this idiom? And you're like, we all know what it yeah. means. And you're like, yeah, but like, where does it come from? Explain it. I don't care about what it means. I care about why on earth you would say it. You find out yeah. some interesting things. Like, Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah no, without that. I think the, the thing you most commonly find out, though, of course, is that nobody knows where they come from. <laughs> and most true. people don't care. No. I <laughs> care, though, Liz. No. Mm, yeah. Me too. Well, mm. like helicopter. It comes from like helico, like the shape and pterus to fly. Why did I not know that? Do you know why um, the suburban neighbours is called Erinsborough? No. no. It's an anagram of neighbours. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> I did not know that. That's amazing. Why doesn't everyone know that? I don't know, but there, I have no trivia fact that I love more and that I get a more reliable response from. You have blown oh my, my mind. God. I know. I do crosswords all the time. Same. I'm always looking. Same. And I didn't see and, it. And that is you all never, I can normally see, but that's just one of those ones in plain sight. You never see Heronsborough written down, though. So no. that's yeah. this is probably why we never thought of it. Well, yeah. oh. also because like and Summer Bay is enough. a perfect anagram. No, right. I've yes. <laughs> I, went, I, I was doing it in my yeah, head, that's but like, it <laughs> rhymes with home and away. Oh no, yeah. that's on purpose. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cool. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. I'm. I can't do questions after that. That's just too exciting. We have to though. Oh, fine. Because okay. we we got some great questions. We got a lot episode. of them, so we won't be able to do all of them. But we'll just do a cross section. Mm. All right, so this one's from Molokov. Bilius is formed as a counterpart to Bibulus, the god of wine. What other popular gods from Earth mythology deserve such counterparts, and what would they be gods of? I think it's a ripoff that you only get a god of lightning or a god of thunder. I think you should have one of both. Like, I think Thor should have, like, a younger sibling or, like, a it's sister or something god. who's the lightning god. Well, actually, it'd be an oldest. No, a younger sister who's faster than him. Let's be honest, though. Just being god of thunder... <laughs> Is really anticlimactic. Like you don't have your moment where you've got the the bolt of lightning coming. You're just like there's a rumbling noise. It's like you're personified indigestion <laughs> rather than anything impressive. You need the lightning to have your that's true strikes. And you have to be like, oh no, I did that. Like that's yeah, not just happening. That's, yeah, me. that's me. Yeah. Also, oh, how close are we to each other? And you'll know if the storm's coming. Oh, my sister's just here. It's fine. We're in the eye of the storm right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Disappointing. Yeah. But the, the countervailing god thing is interesting. Like you have a god of war, but a god of peace is a kind of weird concept. Mm-hmm. I, mm, interesting. I mean, I guess the god of hangovers is also a interesting concept. This is my moment to say that I've never had a hangover. What? I'm sorry, what? I've n- never once had a hangover. Okay, have you I'm been out. drunk? Yes. Okay, well, that... Everyone kept saying it would happen the older I got, and so far it has not. Oh, don't worry. Well, you're not old enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say, 
that will pass. I have weird periods where I'm hangover free, but mm, yeah. n- not unlike in this book, I will then smugly make some reference mm. to that and then the next night I'll have a single glass of wine and then be ruined by it. Mm. But look, if you're keen to have a hangover, I'm quite happy to engineer the right combination of we can tequila <laughs> and other things that will... I've been a half centurion and that didn't give me a hangover, so, you know. Mm. Okay. All right. Well. Well, need the full centurion then. Maybe we, I we just need don't think a, I could do a full centurion. Just get a proper Pratchett like drinking game that'll, that'll kill us all. Done. Uh, all right. All right. Oh, okay. That's the, cutting me on throat. <laughs> the gauntlet has been thrown. I have to call it the Billy or something. I'm trying to think what other gods you could have a counterpart to. It's a good question though. We'd love to hear if you have any ideas about counterpart gods. Listen, remember the, the uh, hashtag is Pratchett26. We'd love to hear them. Another one from Molokov is Would you dare use the Arch Chancellor's bathroom? I would. You know, I think because if you're just not dumb enough to pull on the those levers, it seems like it was really nice. I think red colour is very relatable. Like there's a certain belligerence. <laughs> if you've ever worked in like a big bureaucracy or even a university, mm. there's something about red colour who's the person who just cannot be asked in during another PowerPoint presentation mm. or couldn't bear and is a kind of cut to the chase thing. And I think that belligerence has a real appeal to it. So I kind of... Get the bathroom thing. You're like, well, stuff it. I don't care about the rules and regulations. The sign's there. Let me check it out. I think I would. Yeah. At least once. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, never twice, but always (laughs) once. (laughs) This one is from Joel Molin. Which fairy slash deity would you accidentally call into existence? Mm. Yeah, look, the one that hides my glasses just once or twice a year. Because I wear, I'm one of those people who has to wear glasses all the time because I, everything is blurry if I don't wear them. So I need them all the time. And every now and then I can't find them when I wake up. And it's the worst feeling because if you haven't got your glasses on, it's much harder to look for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but I don't, I always put them where I know where they're going to be. And so I think probably the, the gremlin of glasses hiding. Mm. Yeah. Probably like the fairy of spilling things on yourself that you shouldn't spill oh, on yeah. yourself. Cause yeah. like, like it, Generally defies physics the way I drop things. Like I'll put a cup of tea down, I'll move it slightly, and somehow like the liquid will go up and fall. Like that, it shouldn't. Like yeah. it defies physics how that works. And there's another day where I rarely eat chips, and I took one out, and somehow I upended the packet, and they all went all over me. Uh huh. Yeah. Strong. Yeah. The of spectacular spillages. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, that's good. I think for me it'd be an imp of name recognition or failure to recognize names that the <laughs> face and name thing is that I think there's definitely some kind of small or lesser God uh, that lurks around yeah. me that just removes my capacity to connect a face and a name. I think that'd be the one. Now, okay. I've got this thing where I can't remember whether it's faces or names that I'm bad with, or if I can sometimes remember faces and sometimes remember names. And there's so many people I've said, Oh no, I'm bad with names or faces. And I can't keep straight which one. <laughs> yeah. I've said which you one too. Keep your story straight. Because well, I don't know which one is true. Oh, so no. here's my guilty confession: is I do a lot of pretending I remember people because no, yeah. I think it's a safer default is to do the nice to see you again. Because even if you're wrong, no one's going to correct you because they're worried that they've forgotten. Ooh. And mm. so it's it's terrible behaviour, but it's just a safe bet where you're like, it's so nice to see you again, and you're just like, okay. That's good. I'm free of the social awkwardness. No, so I do exactly the same thing. And I'd like to just extend some advice, which is drop the again. Because if you just go, it's nice to see you, that covers people you're meeting for the first time that you know from not face-to-face as well. Less obviously duplicitous. Yeah, so I think it's quite safe because it covers everyone. I'm into it. 
You're shaking your head. Horrified both of you. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's fine. nice to see you, Ben. <laughs> uh, I knew this was going to happen. Uh, no, I, your well, name. Why? Well, I, I have very good memory for faces, but I, I do struggle with names sometimes. So I can, I can, you know, I sympathize. Um, this one's from Yogbug. Are we getting pork products or a bag of bloody bones this year? So have we been, been good or, or not? I think the year's already been its own bag of bloody bones <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know. What are pork products if not a bag of bloody bones anyway? <laughs> Why? Well, I, I kind of, I don't, I hope that I'm not getting either of them. Um, this one's from Joel Molin. So, death's motivation ends up coming from a deep understanding of humanity and what makes humans human, but he regularly struggles to understand more mundane details of human life. Does he have this fundamental understanding because he's a product of narrative himself, or is he just a great student of humanity after all? It's interesting because he does display quite a subtle understanding in some ways of humanity. But then again, you know, even the subtler things that he understands in this book are not that subtle. Like he uses pretty basic reverse psychology on Susan mm. that works. And the, the real subtlety there is that he understands that it will work on her because of their relationship and because of the way he phrases it. He's not like, you're stupid, you'll fall for it. You know, he's more like, I know that you're going to buy what I'm going to say. He, he understands what their relationship is like. And yet at the same time, doesn't understand certain things about her i think the other thing that's fascinating is he is completely devoid of moralism of any sort so there's no ethical framework there's no value judgment there are just the things that are what they are and you accept them and you behave a certain way and i think that kind of dispassionate thing paradoxically it becomes its own kind of act of empathy because it's death's perception of things is completely unclouded by things like judgment hmm Hmm. Although he does, and it's interesting in this book, he has those moments where he's kind of breaking out of that, but it seems to be that's because of his taking on of the Hogfather persona because he saves the little match girl and he decides that everyone should get good food and good presents, even if that means he's got to take it from the rich and redistribute it. And that does seem a bit out of character for him. Yeah. Um, although he does make the point that, you know, as death, he treats everyone equally. Yeah. Um, and you're like, well, yeah, sure you do, but the world doesn't. And I think that uh, it's interesting when we read the uh, other couple of death books, I think it's kind of a point that doesn't really come across yet is that, yeah, death is equal to everyone, but what causes your death and how long a life you get is definitely not equal. Mm. And I don't remember that being particularly addressed in any of the books. So I'll be interested to see if that does crop up in the later ones. Um, here's a question that came in from a few different places, including Radio Morfork and from Brian Holding. Um, so, if you were trying to break into the Tooth Fairy's Tower, what childhood terror would manifest for you? Oh, God. It's quite personal. But yeah. no, I think it's a very good one. You know, it takes me back to my father. And no, not really. Um, <laughs> I think mine would be um, catching public transport and finishing my book before I got to the end of the journey. Hmm? Oh, my God, it brings me out into a cold sweat. Just imagine you've got nothing to read. Oh. You finish your book. You didn't have a backup book. Just it's start the, from the beginning. It's just, uh. No, it's too terrifying. I can't. I've okay. always got to have a backup. Okay, creepy. Um, Liz? I've got a weird one. Uh, I was scared of the noise that a toilet flushing makes, and I was also embarrassed about being scared of the – so I used to hide it from my parents. So what I used to do when I flushed the toilet is – going to act it out here but i put one hand on one ear and the other ear on my shoulder so i had a hand free to flush the toilet but the sound would be muted so uh -huh. i guess that would be a weird way to die is like just killed by the noise of flushing toilets yeah, it's true oh, wow yeah but yeah my mum busted me one day she's like what are you doing and i was just so embarrassed that i stopped doing like i was forced 
to stop doing it and get over my fear just because to of nonchalantly flush the toilet like a normie. <laughs> now as an adult, I can flush the toilet without blocking my you ears. You should be so proud. That I, is gross. I'm that so is, brave. Yeah, you've come a long way. Yeah. So um, um, you're welcome to that insight into my mind. Yeah. Um, I, look, I, I had a few, I had a couple of weird like nightmares that I don't think would it'd be very difficult for them to come to life and kill me. But I, um, I certainly was afraid of aliens for a long time because I saw the film Alien way too young. Like I was been eight and I saw it on television and I watched it up until the chest burster scene and then I had nightmares for like three weeks. But I think the big one actually for me was that, um, I lived, when I was growing up, we lived in a, a house that was bordered on like a, a nature reserve. And we had these big glass windows, glass windows, that's a tautology. We had these massive windows so you could just see out. And at nighttime, like they didn't have any curtains or anything. So at nighttime, you just see out into the bush. Mm. And there was an episode of, I think it was a country practice where someone was pranking people by pretending to be like a yaoi or a bunyip. (laughs) And they'd made this terrifying costume that involved like a ram skull and all these bits of stuff. And I swore that I saw it out the window after I'd seen it on the TV and I, and I was scared of that for quite a while. And I think of all the things that scared me when I was young, that's probably the one yeah. that would come and get me. No, I think a country practice prop would definitely be the worst way to go. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, no, the EC doll from Liftoff would be the worst oh, way to go. Yeah, okay. That's staring its non-face at you. I understand it. It never freaked me out as much as other people. But it hasn't I, got I a face. It. It's yeah, like a movie. That's because it represents thing. every child. Yeah, it's exceptionally oh, white for that's a, what the EC means. <laughs> every child. We've got one from David Butler. What's with the choking on the bean thing? Ah, now I looked into this because I saw this question and uh, it's actually addressed at length in the book, um, The Folklore of Discworld, which I recommend. We we haven't covered it on the podcast yet. We we will. But it comes from a couple of different sources. So there, there was a tradition where as a sort of a merry thing you'd do at Christmas, they'd put one particularly big bean into the pie that they were cooking and they'd slice it up and whoever got the bean in their slice of the pie was the king of the bean or the bean king. But also there was this idea that comes across in the Hogfather myth of someone being sacrificed uh, as as a king figure to make the sun rise. And there was apparently someone who's a folklorist who said that they believed that the bean thing where you pick someone at random to be the king is like a remnant of the king being sacrificed to bring forth the sun and it's like that sort of idea where you pick someone to be like the exalted most important person for a day and then they're sacrificed to make you know society go this one's from the wizard of white tulip um my own personal holiday tradition is to watch hogfather during the holidays sometimes with a group sometimes on my own do you all have any unusual holiday traditions i thought that's a quite nice one to end on yeah um i used to watch blackadder's christmas carol every christmas and then i lent my box set of blackadder on dvd to someone and i never got it back uh, if you're listening to this podcast, I'd like it back, please. I like to watch a different Christmas set, non-Christmas movie each Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the perennial debate about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Gremlins is a great one for that That's period. my favorite, yeah. The Family Stone, I'm partial to. Great film. <laughs> kind of uh, Diane Keaton rom-com, but fun. But so where... Uh, Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Oh, um, you strong know, choice. Uh, Iron Man 3. Like, these are all Christmas set movies that are not Christmas movies, and it's a category I like. That's cool. Liz, do you have any? Well, I don't have any long-lasting Christmas traditions. Um, what I used to do in my teens was my parents would get me a box set of DVDs and a box of Ferreros, and then Christmas would do lunch, and then I'd sit and eat all my Ferreros and watch a bunch mm. of DVDs, which, I mean, I think says a lot about how I know 
the things that I know about TV. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then there's just a period of time where... And your diabetes. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> All of them. And at one point, my parents and I just decided that we couldn't be bothered doing Christmas tree anymore, so we just put presents under a chair in, in our home, which I think is quite a nice sort of low-key thing. But I think the thing that I do, it's not really a Christmas thing, it's um, like a every year thing. I think over people who've helped me out over the year and I send them a message. So I will send people a thank you for helping me with this thing or thank you for doing this thing. And I try and sit down and just do a few each year. And I think that's kind of nice. I always feel really weird doing it. I always feel like super earnest. But yeah. That's lovely. I think yeah. you've both gotten one from me at some point. But yeah. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Thanks, Liz. Oh, you're That's welcome. Nice. Thank you for the thanks, but no. Um, yeah. Oh, well, that kind of brings us to the end of the questions. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Is there, what? Should have done it in a deeper voice. <laughs> That's all right. You can have another go. Oh, no, no, I'm done. Oh, we can just play with it in post. Yeah, we can. We can. <laughs> I can add Perfect. an echo. Great. I will. Um, echo. Yeah. Mm. Um, now, you are the director of the Wheeler Centre. For those listeners nominally. who maybe nominally, uh, is there another way to be director? Uh, it, look, it's purely a ceremonial role. That's okay. A- well, that's that's the nicest one to have, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But if there are listeners who are not familiar with the Wheeler Centre, how would you describe? The Wheeler Centre is a cultural institution in Melbourne uh, devoted to the art form of public conversation. So we put on talks across the year. Uh, 80% of them are free and our kind of guiding principle is that uh, to build a good community, a good society, public conversation is an integral tool and shouldn't be something that's driven by the market or by media owners. It should be a space where experts and passionate people of all sorts can come together. That's beautiful. How's that? I had that in the back pocket. Yeah, that was great. Um, no, I love it. I'm really passionate about it. It's been going for about 10 years. A lot of the talks that we do are podcasted or available on video um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's no Pratt chat, but it is still something you could do while you are commuting is listen to some of those non Pratt chat episodes. Well, I watched you interview Eric Idle and I was just dying on the inside of jealousy the whole time. So it was, let's say I have now, um, as part of this job, been able to interview both Eric Idle and Michael Palin. Gosh. So I feel like I'm getting a set. Um, you better I, hurry up. Well, I did love when they did their big show in London, their reunion show a couple of years ago. It was called One Down, Five to Go, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty good name do for they, a reunion show. Do they still bring Graham's Ashes to those shows? I, they did at one point. Oh, uh, it seems only right. Yeah. I like that their um, tribute to, to Graham Chapman was at his funeral saying fuck on national TV. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's how he would have wanted it. That's how you remember. (laughs) Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, look, thanks again, Michael. Thanks so much for coming. Thank Um, you both. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, There really isn't any point in us doing this if you're not listening. So thank you. Uh, We hope you have a very lovely Hogswatch. Um, We'd like to send out a special thank you, of course, to all our supporters. If you love the podcast and you want to support us and help us get all the way through every Terry Pratchett book, which is going to take us probably still another three or four years after this episode, you can do so either monetarily by getting onto our website, checking out our support page. You can subscribe via Possible and you get some bonus content, some extra goodies from that. Or you can just share the podcast with your friends who you think will listen to it. Um, get onto your Terry Pratchett reading mates who love Terry's work and tell them about us. Uh, or you can review and rate us on whichever podcast directory you use. Um, that really helps people find the podcast and that helps us 
feel like people are listening and that we can keep going. And of course, we are going to keep going. Liz, we're going to be back next year to read the next Discworld book, which is... Jingo Bells. No, just Jingo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like it would be merrier if it was called Jingo Bells. Well, we could just call it that. We can just, just Reality is what you make it if you enough of you believe in it. Mm, that's true. But next year also, you'll probably find that we're going to try and pepper the schedule with a few more non-Discworld books because we are trying to make sure we don't end up with a situation where we've read them all and then there's a whole bunch of non-Discworld books at the end because we are committed to making the last episode the last Discworld book. I think that's that's going to be the best way to end off the series. So uh, get ready for some jumping around in the order and also a few non-Discworld books next year. It's going to be good. Um, we hope you'll join us for all of those episodes. So have a merry Hogswatch and until next time, good, good night, night, children, children everywhere. everywhere. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Michael Williams. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to our past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat26. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.